Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. Um, we're it's season three. I I'm so used to saying famous fatalities edition. It feels uh, I feel nude. <laughs> I feel nude is the truth. <laughs> as always, I am your host, Lauren Ash. And as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I've had a week. Um <laughs> I'm, I I'm gonna say early. Buckle up, dear listeners, because oh. this week I am unhinged. <laughs> I haven't uh, had a lot of sleep. Uh, I've been getting up at four and five in the morning to make sure that my teenager is up to go to work, uh, which I know a lot of people are like, oh, just let it go. Uh, let him not wake up in time and fail and whatever. And that's just not the parent that I am. I just can't do it. But I will give him props. Took three days this morning. He was up on his own. Hey. But that still meant my alarm was set for four and I was still awake and I can't just fall back asleep. And then tonight we're recording quite late compared to what Very we normally late. do. And that, that dear listeners is on me. Uh, because it's just, again, <laughs> it's been a week. Um, and this record could easily go till potentially one or later, and my alarm is yeah. set for four. So it's going to be a ride. But really, I mean, I spent almost eight hours in a single day just driving back and forth to various kid activities uh, in a single day last week. So I lost almost a whole day of research. And then I spent a day making a season two best of clip episode, like clip video that 
no one asked for. We <laughs> we never discussed. I just went, sure. Ooh, God, if we're saying it's season three now, I should probably make a video. And before yeah. you know it, my day is gone. <laughs> so all of a sudden it's like, ooh, I'm going to have to push that record so I have time to prepare. And now I'm yeah. prepared, but it's like, oof. We're, we're we're pushing like all like well after 10 p.m. my time. And by the time this is all said and done, I may like a gymnast just hit the mattress and back back up and get out. <laughs> get out of the <laughs> bed. So I'm all over the place. And I also I'll say it. I went a little hard at the brunch yesterday. Yeah. Because I don't recall yeah. much. Uh my husband said something to me and i just went oh what is that and he's like well that was you i was like what episode did i say that in and he's like no you said that at the brunch and i was like when did i do that <laughs> and i just genuinely didn't remember and then he said it to me later and i was like what is that from again he's like it's from you <laughs> like for those That's wondering, we're, uh, we're talking about uh, on Patreon, we have a bunch of bonus episodes and bonus uh, content that we offer. One of the things is we do a monthly live Q&A brunch. Yep. Uh, and sometimes we get a little tipsy. <laughs> now, I think that the thing is mm -hmm. that I am just always so happy in general in life when I'm not the drunkest in the room. Yep. And it's rare. It's rare that I'm not. So that was a treat for me. <laughs> um selfishly it was a treat for me but you were a gd delight oh. i i i mean i had a i had a blast i had a blast i the thing i'm relieved about is i really thought i was gonna be so sick today i really and? did and oh i feel fine and i think it's because i ate so much food from the moment we were done for the next yeah eight hours <laughs> like to the point uh, we had like a meal the second it was done and then kids go to bed about an hour later and my husband's like, Hey, do you want some popcorn? And I was like, Oh God. He's like, or is it too close to supper? I was like, I'm, are you kidding me? If you made me a steak dinner and then all of a sudden I trailed off and just went, Oh my God, with like baked potato, maybe some sauteed mushrooms on the side. And he was like, I'm not making you steak right now. And I'm like, ah, but I would eat it. Like, I could not have been more hungry. And yeah, I ate that popcorn. And I think that's what saved me in the end. That it was, I filled up on food. It sopped up everything I had in my system. And then this morning, or I, or the joke is, I'm barely alive. So I don't know that I'm hurting. Yeah. I don't know. Again, it's the sleep has been lacking lately. So I'm, I'm mentally on yeah. another planet. It could be cumulative. I've had times like that, and then it's like day four or five, and then it's like, oh, woof, now I'm feeling the hangover, you know? Yeah. So buckle in for later in the week, not to be, you know, oh, not I'm, to freak you I'm, out. I'm bracing for Tuesday for myself, really, because Tuesday is the one day that I don't have to set my alarm for any time. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to sleep till 8 p.m. <laughs> I'm going to have to leave, like, Lunchables somewhere that the kids can find to feed themselves. Yeah. And, uh, oof. well, they'll be fine. 
That'll be fine. You know, one of my favorite mem- uh, memories of Lunchables is you and I at my drama day camp. Mm-hmm. I dragged you along when you were visiting when we were kids and we watched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey yeah. that day. And you and I ate our Lunchables and what a treat. We were surrounded by girls that were braiding each other's hair in a beautiful chain of braids. Just like, oh, yes. like 10 girls in a row, each braiding the girl in front of her hair. Um, I remember being so jazzed about those Lunchables because to me, Lunchables was peak ritzy. Like, we <laughs> never did Lunchables. She uh, ain't just talking about the crackers, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I, like, we never did Lunchables at my house. We always saw them and I was always told, like, oh, who needs that when you can spend less money to buy all the ingredients and then you just cut it up yourself. And I'm like, but it's... You're you're paying to have the work done for you. Um and it's fun. And it's, it's just fun. So much fun. Uh and I it is something that I still a memory that I hold in high regard because again, it was one of the classiest moments of my youth, but also somehow my life so far. Oh god, this is turning <laughs> sad. Well, listen, uh, let me pull you out of the doldrums yeah, yeah. before we go too too deep. I have to give a quick update because last week I was so excited to give the announcements about season three of and everything. Course. I glossed over something that happened uh, during or after, rather, the China episode yeah. that I want to address very quickly. So Christy and I were recording the China episode of the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen because let me tell you, Old Ash gets gets rageful and weepy, okay? It's a real journey, real roller coaster. Of course. Um, and uh, boyfriend of the podcast, Spencer Ralston, <laughs> yeah. uh, my boyfriend, came in the house, and Christy's still on Zoom. We've literally just wrapped up recording, and he's got something behind his back. And he is, he he looks like the cat who caught the canary. Just, just real proud of himself. Yeah. And I'm like, what is this all about? And he's like, you're not going to believe this. But on my way home, I stopped at the 7-Eleven. To pick yeah. up a snack. And because it was quite late at that point, too. And he goes, and they were selling things. He's like, I couldn't believe they were selling this at the 7 Eleven. So I had to buy it for you. And what does he give me but a China Funko Pop? Now, for those of you who don't know, Christy and I both collect Funko Pops. Yeah. We have hundreds in our homes. Yeah. Um, and so, so first of all, I, I love that it's a Funko. And second of all, I was like, what are the chances that this random 7-Eleven, and this is a 2021 release, this China. This is not like old stock or something. Like this 7-Eleven is selling brand new Funko Pops, new releases. Um, so that was weird enough. And then we also realized that in that episode, Christy had just started talking about her love affair with 7-Eleven, about how she loves 7-Eleven. Yeah. You were giving a shout out saying, please let me promote your products. You love them as an establishment. I do. I do. What are the chances? Like, that is synchronicity. Oh, that. It was a lot right? of beautiful layers coming together. Oh, like you'd layer a Lunchable. Nope. Stop. <laughs> Uh, the point is, it was a That's beautiful... That's the gold right there. Yeah, it was so beautiful. What, Like, what are the odds? If he had found it a day or two later, it, would, it wouldn't it would have all matched up. It still would have been lovely and like, oh, hey, we of just course. talked about that. But it's the, the whole thing of he normally doesn't stop there. He nope. happened to stop there that night. Yep. The, they sold them, which... I don't think I've ever seen a 7-Eleven that sells Fungo Pops. So that in itself was already like, wait, what happened? 
And the fact that it was, what are the odds of all the Funko Pops that have come out in 2021? What are the odds that that one would have been there? It was meant to be. I think, I'm just going to say this. If in the future time travel does become possible. Yeah. I believe that you and I went back in time and planted that thing at that 7-Eleven. Oh, my God. Don't you think? We so did. That's totally us. Because I have a theory that oh. in the future. Yeah. I have a theory, and I've talked about this with friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler, because we're also, Leslie Seiler and I are convinced that we once met our future selves at Disneyland because there was these two older women, and they were really chatting with us, like really chatting with us, and then we, and we were delighted. I mean, we chat with anybody at Disney, um, but, but they were really talking to us, and then we said, what are you, what are you two here for? And they looked, they gave each other this look, and they were like, oh, we're just celebrating. And I was like, what was that? And then she and I, Siler and I sat for about 45 minutes and unpacked that it was like, I think that was us from the future. And here's my theory. I think in the future, time travel is real. It exists. And you can go on time vacations. But I think that there are very strict rules where you're not allowed to go visit your past self. There's like all these things so that you don't create a paradox, all of the above. Sure. Right? But I also know that, like, if there was anything I would want to go to prison for, especially late in life, it would be pushing the envelope about trying to meet my past self. So with all of that in mind, I can see you and I on one of our hug smugglers trips being like, let's stop off in 2021. We got to put that Funko for Spencer to find. Because what's more time travel-y than going into the parking lot of a convenience store a.k.a. Bill and Ted, popping it, and you know, it doesn't matter what year, I'm going to want to stop in at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> because again, well, that's I love your product. Thank heaven, 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't give them too much for free. Come on. Oh, look, if they, that, was, that was the dry bones to let them know that I got it in me. Um... <laughs> Okay, that's I, the dry bones. What <laughs> to let them know you can get wet? I mean, I just I don't know where that analogy was going, but I, I'm here for it. Again, I I live on another planet this week. Um, yep. Okay, my question: Did yes. you get a photo with these women or of these women? We didn't. Oh. And when we went back, <laughs> I'm not kidding. When we went back to like have another look, they were gone. They were gone. Did they have fanny and packs? And they were in, of course. There's no chance you would go without a fanny pack. It had to have been you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And the other thing was, is that it was Christmas and they were in the Gibson Girl ice cream shop. And one of Siler's wants, every Christmas trip when it's cold, it, it doesn't get that cold in California. Sure. But when it When it's the coldest it can get here, she has to have this peppermint ice cream specifically from that ice cream shop. So it was one of those things where if they, if we were choosing to go back in time and we we definitely wanted to run into ourselves, but we weren't sure of exact dates, It's a pretty good guess that at nighttime on a Christmas trip, that would be the place to go. Like it was just, it just all made sense. Okay. Right. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So here's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think you and I now need to start going through footage because 
Is there a chance that we were at a WWE event where we hugged China? Is there a possibility that there's some footage of Marilyn Monroe where she was meeting fans and she got a hug from somebody that looks remarkably like one of us? An older version of us. This is the thing we have to remember. Because if we're time traveling from the future, it would be, you know, us in the future. It would be us 30 years from now, potentially. Oh. This is footage I want to go through. (laughs) (laughs) This is a rabbit hole that I am excited to get into. Yes. And I encourage all of our listeners to pour through footage. See, can you find any ladies that look Mm -hmm. like they could be grown up? Grown up as though we're children now. <laughs> oh, well, a little bit. Further grown up. Yes. Lauren and Christy. Yeah. With Marilyn, Brittany, Anna Nicole, China. And of course, upcoming episode, which I'm teasing on merch, yeah. com. Amy Winehouse. She's coming. Right. After, at the end of the China episode, I referenced Amy Winehouse and I was like, I got to round out my Blankets Girls of episodes course. with a. With an Amy Winehouse. Of we course. may do more of them down the road, but for now, I was like, that's the fifth. Yeah. That's the fifth of the chunk of of Blankets Girls. Of course. Um, um, I would like it to be said, the idea of us in the future, um, specifically putting that China Funko Pop at 7-Eleven, um, the idea that future us is still in love with Funko Pop makes sense to me. Um, I would like Funko to please hear my words. First of all, we want Superstore Funko Pops. Thank you. Second of all, can you just like a Lauren and a Christie from our first season photo, Lauren with the glass, Christie with the magnifying glass, us in our smirky little hats i i would like to see those as funkos um because i'll say and look also funko we love you we talk about you all the time you're in our homes i was having a bad day the other day and i treated myself because i found out that a mini mouse funko pop pre-order came on sale and i was like i need to get that did i need it Probably not. Um, Was I getting it for myself as a treat? Yes, because it was Minnie dressed exactly how she looked in the 1988 video Totally Minnie. And I went looking into Totally Minnie today. Uh, The synopsis (laughs) is a real journey that I would like to take everyone on. This is the genuine synopsis for this I would say movie. I think it's only like half an hour. I could be wrong. I haven't seen it in years, but I'm going to I'm going to rectify that tomorrow. Uh, This live action film features a nerd who, in desperation, goes to the Minnie Mouse Center for the totally unhip. There he learns how to dress, dance and most importantly, be himself. I have many questions already. First of which, live action was this? Were they yeah. in suits? Uh, nope. The mini was just a cartoon on the screen of just regular people. I believe the nerd, and that he's never given a name. He's just nerd with a capital N. Um, I believe he was one of the 
guys from Revenge of the Nerds. I could be wrong. But it's got so like Suzanne Summers is in it. Cartoon Minnie Mouse does a duet of Don't Go Breaking My Heart with real Elton John. Okay, uh, hang on. Uh, there's, I, again, I'm so sorry. So this was like, this was utilizing like who framed Roger Rabbit technology yes. where it was mixing real people in the cartoon. Yes, Got yes. It. Okay. Wow, I have no memory of this. And as you know, Minnie is my favorite. Oh. So I'm going to probably have to get into totally Minnie also. It's, I mean, it was something I watched repeatedly. Like we taped it wow. off of TV and I watched it over and over again because the second that I saw like Funko, of course, because we follow them, um, came up and was like, hey, we've got all these minis from different, dressed from different like uh, time frames. And as soon as I saw that outfit, it pulled me right back to Totally Mini. And I was like, that's it. And then I started looking up Totally Mini today and I was like, okay, there I go. I'm, I feel vindicated. She is in that exact outfit. Wow. So I could not be more excited. I know that I'm going to watch it now and go, wow. Yep. All right. Um, yep. But I also know I'm going to sing along like hell to Don't Go Breaking My Heart. <laughs> and do it. Do it for your spirit. Yeah. Now, because we are the same person, yeah. I also – and listen, here's the thing. I have been saying I have to start limiting the Funkos because I have a I have a grown-up home and my living room is full of them. <laughs> full. Like on my grown-up shelves – Full of them. Sure. Everywhere. And I was like, you know what? I'm just starting to get to capacity because I also have a, a den that's full of them. I also have a spare bedroom that's full of them. So I'm on, you know, uh, looking around, clicking and clacking around on the internet. And what do I see? I see a Mandalorian presale. And who is it? It's Mando without his helmet holding Grogu. And literally it was, I can, I can't. I can, I can't. I can, I can, I can, I did. So I've also pre-ordered that. So I feel I feel you again because we are again the same person. Um, so we both are are constantly uh, doing the same things at the same times without even knowing, without even knowing Look, it. I already have a vision of getting you some sort of like shelving that's near the top of the wall, like near the ceiling, along like the spare bedrooms in your home, anywhere that you don't want it to be the, your adult space. And then we just load them up and we just get in there. We put them anywhere we can. Like some places maybe have like a, tr a train track above their house. Do they? They don't, Christy. I don't think anyone puts a model train going around the roof of their house. I'm never sure that never. was in a Christmas movie once. That must be where I'm well, getting there's, it. In Belleville, Ontario, shout out to my hometown. Of course. In the, at the Reeds Family Fun Dairy. That happens around the... Uh, See, I knew somebody yep. did it. My point is, yep. we put a shelf, it's way up there, or, or, your walls are suddenly a little closer in because we, we floor to ceiling them and put a sheet of plexiglass in front of them. That's your new wall. <laughs> okay. We turn into the swerve. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. I like this. Because there's no... Oh, yeah, because I have, like, my special I'm, ones yeah. also, like, very well... I, it should also be noted, like, I have some of them very highly uh, presented. They're showpieces. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Yes. I was just saying, like, maybe I should put a limit. And then what I realized very quickly was that's silly, and, of course, I'm not going to limit myself. Again, yeah. season three, no rules, no boundaries, <laughs> but there is kind of boundaries. But in this case, there's no boundaries. Right. Yeah. Um, listen, before we jump into it, uh, what you drinking over there? Oh, I'm going to be honest with you. I, because I'm on another planet, 
Uh, and because I know that I'm up in approximately five hours, um, I'm just doing a water tonight just to just to make sure I'm hydrated and 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 on on task on the track that's the small train running above my head. I nope. See, well, you know who's not engineering that train, Brandy. <laughs> oh, it's for the best. I'm gonna bring her out at some point because it's been too long. But absolutely. Um, now listen, over here I've got a giant vat of water. Of course. I have a glass of Matua. Nice. Uh, which I, I haven't had a white wine in, a, in quite a few weeks, so I'm very excited about that. And I need to give a shout out to one of our OG True Crew members, Christine. She sent me some black cherry cit- citrus fresca, which as you know, we have been chasing this dragon in California. It is still not available in Los Angeles anywhere. Yeah. I have checked. Oh, she sent me a beautiful care package. Many items in there. Um, for the dogs, for Sharky, oh. so sweet. But when I saw these frescas, I literally screamed <laughs> when I opened the. I'm not even kidding. I went, yeah. "Oh my god!" Like it was this, just the best. Yeah. So thank you, Christine. You're just beyond the sweetest. Um. So yeah, I've got. Th- I'm. I'm triple dipping. I've got three liquids going, which feels right. Oh yeah, feels right. It balances out the fact that I only have one. There we go. But dear but- listeners, let it be known, even with water. I'm going to be a mess either way. So (laughs) I still don't know what you're in for. And that's the magic of true crime and cocktails. So let's get into it. Of course, this episode, we're talking about Lizzie Borden. Truthfully, I will be honest, Spencer asked me about Lizzie Borden, and I don't know that much information. So I'm very excited to learn all about her story. Uh, For those of you like me who maybe don't know, here's some background. In August 1892, a quiet city in Massachusetts, was rocked by the gruesome deaths of Andrew and Abby Borden. They were attacked in their own home, and the main suspect of the crime was the couple's 32-year-old daughter, Lizzie Borden. But after her arrest and a short trial, Lizzie was found not guilty. So what really happened to the Bordens? Were they the result of a robbery gone wrong? Was the killer one of Andrew's former disgruntled business partners? Or did their daughter actually get away with murder? Nice. I, again, when I'm, it's the last thing I do uh, after I, after I do my notes, I do that little bit and then I write the really quick synopsis that goes on different network platforms or whatever to say what the episode's about. And that was a real race against time. (laughs) If if we can do um, time travel. What I want is for us to go, I want future us to come back to sometime around this time and uh, give me a nap. Although I'm convinced, <laughs> now now you've got me thinking, did we sneak into my house this morning at 4 a.m. and make sure my son was awake? I couldn't give Listen. him props for doing it himself. I assume, I still assume I get the credit, but like future me. Yes. Like, was future me, like, throwing rocks at his window? Could be. Just to be like, give her a break. Let her rest. I don't know what the levels are. Like, I don't know if it's like we can only choose our moments or if we're going <sighs> back and forth all the time. Part of me thinks you and I, we're just like, we spend our later years Thelma and Louising life. Like, we're just yeah. like in the time car. The time car? <laughs> <laughs> That's apparently what they call them. The time car. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and you would know. You've been and zopping. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Thank you. It's yeah. a repressed memory or it's an oppressed memory. I, I don't know. wish more than anything that you and Siler got a photo of the women and that when you went to look back, it they weren't there or there was just like a white dot of like, or there was something where it's like, but they were right there. Like, oh, this movie writes itself. It so does. It so does. Uh, I also, I normally double side my sheets for my notes when I print it out. No one knows. No one cares. Doesn't affect anything. <laughs> um, but I printed it out today and for some reason it didn't. It printed out single sheets, single sided. And that's more than fine. I don't care. But I also did almost have a full like nervous breakdown because it did. So I'm like, she needs to lie down. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's where she's at. So I genuinely don't know where we're going to go. Let's do because it. Because I'm... Get in the time car. I'm everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Beautiful. Well, again, that's our in future. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Hug smugglers unite. All right. Thank you. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't wait to design what this car is going to look like. Yep. So right off the top, first thing we need to do is look at the main characters of this story, I love that I'm calling them characters, even though it's real. But that's just where I was at when I was writing this. Uh, so we're going to start with the Borden family. Andrew Jackson Borden was born September 13th, 1822 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Earlier generations of the Borden family were wealthy and influential, but Andrew's father was a fish peddler and one of the few men in the family who didn't retain the wealth that he was born into. So Andrew's upbringing was much more modest than the previous generations, so Andrew was determined to make something of himself. He started off as a carpenter's helper and then started to manufacture furniture and cabinets and during the Civil War started a side business of making coffins, which leads me to a, God, I pray this isn't true, side note. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> From what I've read... Andrew's coffins cost less than his competitors, which only made his business that much more successful. Now, I don't know if this part is true. God, I hope not. But I've read, in order to get customers to choose him, Andrew would put the deceased in a smaller coffin than was needed so that he could charge the grieving family less money than what his competitors would have charged, um, which would happen and would bring him more business. But if he used smaller coffins, how did the body fit? Well, sometimes Andrew allegedly would just like bend the knees of the deceased to fit them in. Or if that didn't work, he would just, you know, cut off their feet <laughs> so that their body Jesus. would fit in a smaller coffin. Again, I'm hoping this isn't true. But we're talking the 1800s, so I am not going to be surprised by anything that went ba down back then, because some of the things I've been reading are wild. <laughs> wild at best. So Andrew's business prospered, and he went on to become a successful property developer who owned considerable commercial property, as well as the director of several textile mills. 
Andrew was known for working 14-hour days and later in his life would also be the president of Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. On Christmas Day, 1845, Andrew married Sarah Anthony Morse, who was born September 19, 1823, in Somerset, Massachusetts. Not much is known about Sarah other than the fact that she grew up on a farm. Andrew and Sarah had three daughters. The first was Emma Lenora Borden, born March 1st, 1851. Alice Esther Borden was the second, born May 3rd, 1856. But sadly, Alice died less than two years later of hydrocephalus in March 1858. Hydrocephalus is a buildup of fluid in the ventricles deep within the brain. The fluid causes the ventricles to widen, which puts pressure on the brain's tissues. Some estimates report that today, one to two in every 1,000 babies is born with hydrocephalus in the United States. So, Andrew and Sarah's third and easily most well-known daughter, Lizzie Andrew Borden, was born July 19, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Three years after Lizzie's birth, Sarah died in March 1863 of uterine congestion and spinal disease. Uterine congestion is thought to be caused by problems with the enlarged veins in the pelvic area. The highest risk group are women in their 20s and 30s who have had more than one pregnancy. Sarah was just 39. It is said that on her deathbed, Sarah made Emma promise to watch over baby Lizzie. Andrew also wanted to make sure that his daughters were cared for, so on June 6, 1865, he married Abby Durfee Gray. At first, Lizzie called Abby mother, but there was always some animosity there. Lizzie always felt that Mary, that Abby married Andrew for his money, which we will get into later. Uh, okay. It is said that Abby was always treated as an outsider, as Lizzie and Emma were close, and Lizzie and Andrew were close. Andrew didn't wear a ring signifying his marriage to Abby, but when Lizzie presented Andrew with a thin gold ring, he put it on immediately and wore it until his death. Interesting. Some also have commented that it was a, like, sweetheart ring from high school, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm so sorry. How old was Lizzie when her mother died? Um, when did I say her mother died? 1863? She was, she was about She was about two. Okay. Almost three. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh boy. So, Lizzie was also Andrew's namesake. Um, which I found a lot of people, like back in like 1800s, the girls were named after their fathers, which I found interesting because that trend has certainly gone away. I mean, I did. And <laughs> one of one of my son's middle names is, I guess, essentially the male version of my own name, because when you have all boys and they can be named after, you know, your husband or something like that, then it's like. Well, what about me? <laughs> so, but I think that, that that trend is coming back, or at least the trend of using what would typically be considered a male name for females. I feel like has that is that has happened over the past. You know, oh yeah, yeah. There's Ryan's and and all kinds of 
you know, of female names. But again, now I feel like also the movement as as gender becomes less and less of a, of an actual thing for a lot of people, I feel like it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to go. Like the oh, names yeah. become less and less gendered over time. Um, but that is interesting that they were doing that back then. I would not have expected that. I would have thought that it's that that would have been frowned upon in the 1800s. But you'd not think so. But I guess if he doesn't have any. He has no sons. It's like, well, if he really wants his name in there, that's how you do it. Yeah. Uh, but not only did she have his name, she was also considered for- forthright, resolute, and a monument of straightforwardness, not unlike her father. Although Andrew was referred to once as, quote, there didn't seem to be indication that he was a likable man. Jeez, okay. (laughs) Yeah, his photo itself is terrifying and, dare I say, very Ebenezer Scrooge-like. Interesting. Which is very funny parallel, which will seem funny to everyone else in a moment. Uh, So Emma and Lizzie had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. They later got involved in church activities such as teaching Sunday school. Lizzie dropped out of school in the 10th grade and was the secretary treasurer for the Christian Endeavor Society, as well as part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. I don't know what they do, but that sounds like a good time. Uh, Some described Lizzie as willful and stubborn and that she was subject to black moods. And something else about Lizzie that she wanted to... uh, live in the style that she felt her family's social situation entitled her. At the time of his death, Andrew's estate was valued at $300,000, which is equivalent to just over $9 million in 2021. He earned that fortune on his own, so we know he worked hard for it, and while Andrew was known for his vast wealth, he was known for being a cheapskate. Mm. The family resided at 92 Second Street in Fall River, which was downtown in an area known as the Flats. The wealthy and more influential residents in town tended to live in the more fashionable area known as the Hill. But Andrew didn't see a point in living so far from downtown. And not only was this modest three-story home located in the Flats, while indoor plumbing was commonplace at the time. The Borden house only had a single latrine in the cellar, so the family was forced to use slop pails upstairs. The pails were emptied daily, either in the toilet in the basement or simply dumped onto the lawn. No pun intended. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) uh, She's a real train wreck. I was just going to say, actually, I was like, I feel like sometimes when we get together, the way we eat meals could be described Slop as... Pills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, I just can't imagine being a family that's like super rich and you're shitting in well, a bucket. we're painting a picture here for sure. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. interesting that it's always, ah, uh, it's always fascinating. I always mm-hmm. am fascinated by how anybody lives right because i feel like our life experience even if you have lots of friends and you 
experience different friends' homes, you never really know people unless you actually live with them. And I always find it fascinating when there's details like that that come out, that it's like they're super wealthy, but he insists on slop pails, which uh, slop pails is probably going to come into my vocabulary now permanently. Just know that. Oh, this is, it gives me life to know that I'll say something and you're like, well, that's daily usage now. Thank you. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Well, it gives what a slop pail. <laughs> I'm gonna see my. I, you're gonna get texts like that. Just wait. I I can't wait for it because I genuinely that is the best way to describe how I feel right now. God, I'm such a slop pail. <laughs> that's, that's that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at mentally. Um, most wealthy people at the time also had gas lighting in their homes. However, the Bordens used only kerosene lamps. The house also lacked hot water, as it only had two cold taps instead, and there was no running water available above the first floor. So they were living, like, way, way, way below their means. But despite living below their means, they did splurge to have a live-in maid. Bridget Sullivan was a 25-year-old Irish immigrant who started working for the Bordens in 1889. And while her name was Bridget... Emma and Lizzie only ever called her Maggie, as that was the name of their previous maid, and they just refused to be decent people about it. Oh my god. It was said that Andrew gave Lizzie an expensive trip to Europe for her 30th birthday, and that his daughters were given an allowance to purchase any dress they wanted. I also heard that he gave his next wife, who we're going to get into briefly in a second, the same allowance he gave his daughters, but she needed to pay for, like, household items and food out of that allowance. The dysfunction is thick. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say, he actually called the maid by her proper name. Oh, so that, what a prince. something nice that he did. Uh, so before we get into the crime, let's look at the location first. Fall River is a city in Bristol County, Massachusetts, approximately 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Boston. In 2020, the city had a population of around 89,000, but back in the 1890s, it was closer to 83,000, which I'm shocked that it's actually not that different. Uh, And in 1892, it was the third largest city in the state. During the 19th century, Fall River became famous as the leading textile manufacturing center in the United States. Fall River is also known for Battleship Cove, which is home to the world's largest collection of World War II naval vessels. It was also known for the Lizzie Borden case and the Fall River cult murders, which brings us to a true crime side note. (gasps) Oh! The Fall River cult murders were a series of three homicides that took place in Fall River between October 1979 and February 1980, around the time of the Satanic Panic. Oh. And if I could have just one small moment to spill some tea that I learned about the Satanic Panic in a, oh, that can't be legal, side note. (laughs) Again, she was on another planet. When these notes were being done, Uh, the panic originated in 1980 with the publication of a book co-written by psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and one of his patients named Michelle Smith. 
Pazder started treating Michelle in 1973 for depression, and soon after, Michelle started to claim that she wanted, she had something important that she wanted to tell Pazder, uh, but she just couldn't remember what. So then they did, there was a session where Michelle allegedly screamed for 25 minutes nonstop before suddenly just speaking in the voice of a five-year-old child. Pazder then used hypnosis, which helped Michelle to recover memories of alleged satanic ritual abuse at the hands of her mother and others who were a part of her mother's satanic cult. According to Pazder, in the span of 14 months, he spent more than 600 hours using hypnosis to help Michelle recover her memories, which they used as the basis of their book, Michelle Remembers. Pazder became an expert on satanic ritual abuse, and by 1987, he was spending a third of his time consulting on satanic ritual abuse cases. The thing is, no evidence was ever found to prove that Michelle's allegations were true. In fact, all investigations into the book have failed to corroborate any of its claims, and not only that, but the book led to a world wide panic about satanic cults and numerous people being wrongfully imprisoned. Like Dan and Fran Keller. They ran a daycare center in Texas. Kids from the daycare center started accusing the couple of serving blood-laced Kool-Aid, burying children alive with animals, cutting the heart out of a baby, and throwing children into a pool with sharks. The couple spent 22 years in prison before being released in 2013 after journalists and lawyers proved that all of the claims against the couple were completely baseless. And quickly, I'm just going to say, I, I mean, I, I understand, like, your kid goes to a daycare and they come home and go, something terrible happened. And you're, as a parent, you're like, okay, yeah, I got to look into this. If my kid says, Someone threw me into a pool with sharks. I'm going to be like, where the hell did they get sharks? Like, yeah. like I'm going to stop and be like, but like not real sharks, right? Like, and I, yeah, I have a lot of issues. Like my example, we took my oldest to the doctor once when he was about seven or eight. And I don't remember what it was. I think it was just a simple checkup or something. And it came up and he made a joke and he was like, huh, it's like that time you hit me in the head with a hammer, right, mom? What he was referring to was we went to the fair about a week before and got an inflatable hammer that if you bop it on something, it makes like the squeak noise. And I bopped him on the head lightly and it did like a, and I thought that was funny and whatever. The doctor didn't know that's what we were referring to. So I was like, yep, that's. You know, but in his brain, it was like, my mom hit me in the head with a hammer. Right. And it's like, mm, okay, well, I I mean, I guess technically, but details, details are important. But I just cannot yeah. believe that these people were not only like arrested, but then they went through a whole court process and spent decades in jail for something that didn't happen. But... I'm one, I bet everyone's wondering, what happened to Dr. Pazder and his patient Michelle? Well, they're better known today as Mr. and Mrs. Because They Got Married. 
I don't know when, and I certainly don't know why, but I know that it's frowned upon in the psychiatric community. (laughs) Yes! Wildly! Yeah. You can lose your license for that. Yeah. Well, and you should. You should. Well, the problem too, and listen, I, I won't, I won't derail us too far, but there is a great CBC podcast, uh, uh, called Uncovered. Uncover. I'm so sorry, I wasn't prepped for this. Um, but they have a whole season on Satanic Panic, and yeah. they dig into this because there was a very, very famous case actually in Canada. Believe sure. it or not. Long story short, too late. Um, they. One of the things they got into, because it was also about kids at a daycare, it's the same kind of MO, Mm. was that in that case, they ended up determining that the police really led these kids when they were questioning them. And that very, very, very little kids were being questioned for too long, too many times. And you'll talk, they interviewed some of the adults who were kids at the time, and they were talk about like, I just thought I was supposed to say what they wanted me to say because you're like three or four. And when you're three or four and you have scary police people, detectives grilling you for hours and hours over and over, you know, it's not, you know, unbelievable that a small child would then just want to please you and, and say what you wanted them to say anyway. So it's, it's, you know, a similar type story, which is again, part of that whole um, era of time, which is so fascinating because, again, completely different places, completely different countries. Yeah. The same kind of thing happened. Well, this psychiatrist was Canadian. No way. Mm-hmm. Well, may, you know what? I'm also, it's been so long since I listened to that podcast. That may have been part of the story, too. So I, I apologize if people are like, Lauren, you've forgotten. That was a, a pivotal part of the podcast. Here's the thing is that my podcast takes up so much space in this brain that I have deleted information from my brain permanently that I'll never get back. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. When that yep. ring light goes out after yep. the record, that's telling my brain that is the men in black device that you get the light and it goes out of your brain and you remember nothing gone lovely people will approach us and be like so in this episode and i'm like oh dear (laughs) i hope i remember really have to yeah lead me into this because i yeah that's that's where we're at but that's that's fascinating i mean what a Ugh, yeah. Well, well, we aren't quite phenomenon. done on Satanic Panic because we're going to go back to the true crime side note that I had promised. Oh, yes, of course. That I, that I got distracted about. Um, the Fall River cult murders. The three murders uh, involved. There was the first case was 17-year-old Doreen Levesque, uh, who was found under the bleachers at a high school. The second case was 19-year-old Barbara Raposa, who was killed in November 1979, and her body was discovered in the woods three months later. The third case was 20-year-old Karen Marsden, who authorities believe was killed in February 1980. Her partial remains, including pieces of her skull, were discovered in April 1980, but to this day, the rest of her body has not been found. Multiple people were charged with Karen's murder— Uh, But only two were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. One man was convicted and sentenced in Barbara's murder, but as of 2021, Doreen's killer has never been found. But now that I've taken us again on so many rabbit holes, let's get back to, you know, the case at hand. Yes. 
So the Borden family, or more specifically, um, Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, and Emma, were all living together under the same roof, although no one seemed overly jazzed about it. At this point, Lizzie was 30 and Emma was 40, and both were still single, and since the average age of marriage in the 1890s was 22, this meant Lizzie and Emma were spinsters. That is the 1800s choice of words, dear people. Not mine. Yep. Uh, I certainly was not 22 when I got married, so calm down. Listen, I'm still not, so... (laughs) And I'm on the upper end of those two ladies. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, If you ask me if I'm meeting you for the first time. Oh, my God. No joke. 26? Get out of town. But also stay for (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I knew that's the number you'd like for me to say. Because we talked about it once on one of our car trips back from the future. I'm not going to let this go. I love the idea that in my brain, we got some time. (laughs) Like while we're going through time, it's not fast. It's like put in a cassette tape. Oh my God, we have to make sure we can play cassette tapes. Listen, we're not into the future future where it becomes fast. When we're in the future, it's like like when Napster first started and it took forever to download a song. It's going to, you're right. It's going to take us like, it probably takes like two days or something to go back in time. Oh, better pack a lot of tapes. <laughs> and Lunchables. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Do you think they have adult ones? They will. Oh, my God. That's how we make our fortune. I think they kind of already do. Uh, I'm sorry. It's okay. I would personally <laughs> partner with 7-Eleven about it. Because what's more refreshing... <laughs> 7-Eleven. Again, I, yeah, I'll let that go someday. We'll see. Okay, so I have already lost, there we go. June 24th, 1891, a robbery occurred at the Borden house. At some point during the day, the culprit made off with some cash and jewelry. Emma, Lizzie, and the maid Bridget were all at home at the time. The perp was never found, Although Andrew always believed that the robber was Lizzie. Because the thing about Lizzie, it turns out she had a bit of a reputation around town of being a kleptomaniac. Local merchants would give Andrew invoices for whatever they had seen Lizzie take, and he would discreetly pay them to avoid a public scandal. So not only a klepto, but a bad one. If they caught her. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but who knows how often they caught her versus how often they didn't. Yeah. Uh, After the robbery, all the doors in the Borden house, both inside and out, were kept locked at all times. The key was kept in plain view right on the fireplace mantle in the sitting room. And the layout of the house was bizarre at best. I will post a picture on our socials, on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime and Cocktails, or on Twitter at Not Detectives. Uh, basically, upstairs, there's no hallway. So you have to, like, go into a bedroom to go into another bedroom. Oh. So it's weird to me at best. Right. Uh, and with the doors inside of the house always locked, 
that has to start creating some weird feelings, right? Uh, and apparently Lizzie uh, had taken to spending some time in the barn in their backyard where she built a roost for some pigeons that she was caring for. And for some reason, Andrew got it in his head that local children were coming to their property to hunt the pigeons. So he took a hatchet, went out to the barn, and killed every single pigeon. It was said that Lizzie was quite upset about it, not to mention how her father butchered those poor birds and then just left the bloody hatchet on the floor with their bodies. Uh, I forgot to point out, this was in May of 1892. The Bordens were murdered in August of 1892. I'm not saying who did it yet. That'll come up in my wonky theory that I'm not sure... I don't even remember what I wrote, so good luck to us all. Um, and so if that, if the pigeon killing wasn't enough to raise tensions in the house, then the family got into a dispute over properties. Andrew had gifted some real estate to Abby as well as various members of Abby's family, including her sister Sarah. When Emma and Lizzie learned that Sarah received a house, they demanded a rental property, which was the home they lived in, before the death of their birth mother. The women purchased the house from their father for a dollar, and then a few weeks later, they sold the property back to him for $5,000, which is equivalent to $150,000 in 2021. So I like so he, that they were pissed, and then we're like, oh, but we get one too. And they're like, fine, here, we'll, spend, we'll give it a dollar. And then they were like, well, guess what? You're buying it back for $5,000. And he went, They, they okay. should just... Just ask for money. Like, why the why the song and dance? Well, I was going to say, I don't know, but are they trying to prove something about, like, look at us. We're also shrewd business people. Right. Who knows? Right. Uh, but the anger over properties continued and got so bad that not only did Lizzie stop calling Abby mother and start referring to her as Mrs. Borden, uh, but on July 21st, 1892, Emma and Lizzie chose to go on a trip to New Bedford just to escape the house. Now, it's rumored that Lizzie returned to Fall River a week later, but chose to stay at a local rooming house for four days before going home. But at this point, Emma is now visiting friends in Fairhaven, which was about 16 miles or 25 kilometers away. On the morning of August 2nd, Abby visits Dr. Bowen, who lived across the street. Both Abby and Andrew had woken up quite ill, and Abby suggested to the doctor that they had been poisoned. The doctor said poisoning was unlikely, and he sent her home. He then went to check on the couple a few hours later, and Andrew dismissed him, as he didn't want to be charged for a house call that he didn't even ask for. But it wasn't just Abby and Andrew who were ill. The maid, Bridget, was also under the weather. It's been speculated that the cause was a mutton stew that had been left on the stove, which the family used for meals over the course of several days. Which sounds disgusting. <laughs> and most likely was the issue. Uh, the maid, Bridget, even suggested to Andrew that it might be the issue, but Andrew was so cheap that he refused to throw it out. 
I get not wanting to waste food, but the idea of making a meal and then just letting it sit on your stove for days while you eat it over the course of days is just so gross to me. Uh, in our current time of like refrigerators and microwaves, yeah, if you can make a meal that you just pull out of your fridge, look, there is a macaroni salad that I live for. Does my family like it? No. Uh, so my husband used to have this like uh, weekend getaway with friends every year. And I knew he didn't like it. So that day he was leaving, I would make the biggest batch of that salad that we had. And I would literally eat it three meals a day for the whole time he was gone. Make something quick. Kids get like macaroni and cheese. They're living their best lives. They get whatever. But I get that salad because that's all I want. Fuck, I'm going to have to make some tomorrow because my mouth is watering. It's, so is mine. It's not even that exciting. I just live for it because it's nostalgic. And I think that's just where I'm at in my life. Yeah. Uh, but my point is just like I can't imagine making a stew and then just letting it sit out for multiple days and then eating it multiple days later like there's that oh, i can't uh on august 3rd lizzie allegedly went to dr smith's drugstore to try and buy prusic acid a two percent dilution of hydrocyanic acid which was one of the deadliest known poisons it was so toxic, in fact, that in 1837, a physician described it as, quote, commonly used for suicide and is fit for little else. Oh. But in the later part of the 19th century, some doctors would prescribe a diluted solution of it as a sedative, although it was not usually the preferred choice. At the normal prescription dilution, less than a teaspoon could be fatal. The clerk at the drugstore, Eli Bentz, said that Lizzie claimed she needed it to clean her sealskin cape. Eli claimed that prior to his, this encounter, he had never had anyone come in looking for prusic acid, but Lizzie claimed she purchased the poison on many occasions before. Eli said he refused to sell it to her, claiming that a prescription was needed. Lizzie claims she was never there. Uh, at all, but the clerk, as well as two different customers, placed Lizzie at the store at some point between 10 and 11 a.m. On the evening of August 3rd, John Vinicum Morse arrived for a visit. John, who looks oddly like Abraham Lincoln's weird brother, uh, was the brother of Andrew's first wife, Sarah. John was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew, John later suggested that one of the matters was the creation of Andrew's will. That night, John slept in the guest room with Aunt Andrew and Abby, Lizzie, and Bridget all in their own rooms. I only point this out so that we have a general idea as to who was in the house on the night before the murders. Right. Which brings us to August 4th, 1892. Around 7 a.m., John had breakfast with Abby and Andrew. Lizzie remained in her room, which was not out of the ordinary. Abby began her daily chores as Andrew and John moved to the sitting room, where they chatted for nearly an hour. John left the house at 8.45 a.m. to visit other relatives in town. 
The plan was for him to return to the Borden's house for lunch at noon. At some point before John left, Bridget went to the backyard to throw up, as she was still feeling the effects of the possible food poisoning. At 8.50 a.m., Lizzie has a light breakfast of coffee and cookies, and at 9.15, shortly after uh, Andrew leaves for his morning walk, he took some letters with him that Lizzie had asked him to mail. Abby then instructs Bridget to clean the windows both inside and out. And it was abnormally hot, and she's feeling very unwell, so, oof, I really feel for that woman. And she was probably cleaning with vinegar. Oh, God, that makes it worse. Yeah. Uh, so between 9 and 9.30, at some point, Abby goes upstairs to tidy the guest room where John had spent the previous night. Bridget heads outside to clean windows for the next hour. <laughs> Again, that poor woman. Yeah. Uh, around 10.45, Andrew returns home carrying a small parcel. When he entered the home, his key failed to unlock the door, so he had to knock to get in. It turns out the door had been bolted from the inside. Bridget unlocked the door to let Andrew in. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing at this moment, and that she, while she didn't physically see her, she felt that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. Lizzie, of course, later denied being in that area at that time. Mm. So Andrew comes home, removes the bedroom key from the mantle that's in the sitting room, takes the parcel upstairs to his bedroom. The contents of that parcel have remained a mystery to this day. No one knows exactly what was in it. So Andrew comes downstairs and is greeted by Lizzie, who asks about the mail. Andrew, in turn, asks about Abby, and Lizzie says, Oh, yeah, Abby got a note from a sick friend, so she's gone out. Andrew takes off his coat, settles down on the sofa in the sitting room to take a nap. It is not known if this was a usual practice or not, but it could be possibly because of the food poisoning. While he was out, it is said that Andrew was visiting one of his buildings that was nearing completion when he told some carpenters he was going to head home early as he wasn't feeling well. Lizzie brought an ironing board into the dining room and mentioned to Bridget that there was a dress sale on at one of the stores downtown. But Bridget was still feeling unwell and needed to go rest after window cleaning, so she headed to her room in the attic to lie down. Shortly after 11 a.m., Bridget claims she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Bridget came down to find Andrew slumped over on the couch, as he had been during his nap. However, he had been struck multiple times with a hatchet-like weapon. I'm going to get really graphic. I'm so sorry. Okay. It is said that one of his eyeballs was split cleanly in half, which is oh easily the grossest injury I have ever mentioned on this show. Oh, we've heard so much, and that's, yeah, I think that's the worst. Uh, blood was still oozing from his wounds, and he was warm to the touch, which suggested that the attack had just happened. The Borden's next-door neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, was looking out her kitchen window when she saw Lizzie standing at the fr her front door. Adelaide called out to Lizzie, who responded, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. And while that may seem relatively laid back, <laughs> after finding a brutal crime scene, 
one of Lizzie's uncles, Hiram Harrington, said that Lizzie was, quote, not naturally emotional. <laughs> uh, Adelaide rushed next door and was horrified to walk into the crime scene. The police were called around 11.15 a.m., and while the women waited for the police, Adelaide asked Lizzie where she was when the murder occurred. Lizzie said that she was in the barn out back looking for a piece of iron to make a sinker. Apparently, that's a wait for a fishing line. Lizzie apparently had some sort of upcoming fishing trip planned. Uh, Adelaide then asked Abby's whereabouts, and Lizzie said, oh, she received a note from a sick friend, so she went out. Then someone, although I'm not sure whether it was the neighbor Adelaide or the maid Bridget, summoned Dr. Seabury Bowen, which is an amazing name, Seabury, um, who came over to examine Andrew. Around this time, Alice Russell, Lizzie's best friend, arrived. Alice was described as, quote, 40 years old, unmarried, and no one's fool. <laughs> which I think I like Alice just specifically for that definition. <laughs> Listen, it's not far off from me. <laughs> I would give nothing else for uh, just for someone to be like, Oh, Christy? Oh, she's no one's fool. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's hard ass. I like it. Uh, so Dr. Bowen sees the body and is so disturbed, he immediately leaves the room and desire, decides to wire Emma, who was out of town visiting friends. Lizzie requested that the doctor not reveal the full horror to her sister, as she didn't want to alarm the elderly woman, woman with whom Emma was staying. Bridget started to worry about Abby, so she suggested that they contact Sarah, Abby's sister, in the hopes that she would know where Abby was. But Lizzie said maybe Abby returned and went upstairs. Which is random. Adelaide agreed to accompany Bridget upstairs to check, and while on the stairs, they could see the body of Abby Borden in the guest room upstairs. Alice asked, Is there another... And when Adelaide said yes, Lizzie responded, Oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. That's a random response. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Bowen returned to the house and examined Abby, believing that she had died of fright. Abby was found on the floor next to the bed lying face down. But upon closer inspection, Dr. Bowen noticed the coagulated blood that surrounded Abby's head. And since Abby's blood was drying and Andrew's was still very wet, there was little doubt as to the order of the murders. By this point, the police arrived. However, only one officer was sent. Inconveniently for the police, and probably conveniently for the murderer, the majority of the police force were enjoying their annual picnic at Rocky Point near Providence, Rhode Island, which is about 17 miles or 28 kilometers away. So I don't know if the murder happening on that specific day was, if there was more to it or not. So two more officers, uh, sorry, when the patrolman arrived, he was shocked to find Andrew Borden, quote, hacked to pieces. And yet, despite the horrific nature of the crime, there was no signs of disturbance in the house and no murder weapon in sight. Two more officers arrived on scene, and it was only then that Abby's body was turned over to reveal the extent of her injuries. 
When later asked about the murder, Dr. Bowen said, quote, Physician that I am and accustomed to all sorts of horrible sights, it sickened me. Doctors performed an autopsy on the bodies on the dining room table? Yeah. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times on the back of the head. Abby was struck 19 times with a hatchet-like weapon, and Andrew was struck 11 times. It is believed that Abby was killed around 9.30 a.m., while Andrew was killed closer to 11 a.m. Soon, dozens of policemen began to troop in and out of the Borden house, and while the house was in a busy area of town, no one, including the surviving members of the household, had seen or heard a thing. A deputy marshal interrogated Lizzie, and at one point she claimed she removed Andrew's boots and helped him put on slippers before his nap on the sofa. However, we know that Andrew was wearing boots when he died because there are crime scene photos, and it's very obvious that he's wearing boots. I will also post those crime scene photos on our socials. They're not as graphic as you would expect because it's the old-timey photo. They've blurred out the face that you don't want to see, and then everything else is just, you know. So don't worry. It'll be fine. Gotcha. Uh, At first, Lizzie claims she was outside in the barn and that she heard a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call when she entered the house. But then two hours later... She told police she heard nothing and entered the house not realizing anything was wrong. When the marshal refers to Abby as Lizzie's mother, Lizzie is quick to say, quote, she is not my mother, she's my stepmother. So, little uh, animosity there. Lizzie restated her previous claim to the police that Abby received a note from a sick friend and that she went out. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some even stated that they felt she was too calm and poised. But despite her attitude, none of the officers ever bothered to check her for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was only a cursory inspection. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's as well uh, the family's milk and Andrew's and Abby's stomachs were all tested for poison. Yes, dear listeners, the autopsy that took place in their in their dining room, where they literally set up little folded tables in their dining room, um, they, they, the coroner removed the victim's stomachs, and they were sent to a chemistry professor at a nearby university for testing. Um... The point is, no poison was found. So it is most likely um, food poisoning, which is why everyone was so sick. Uh, Lizzie's friend Alice decided to spend the night at the Borden house, and John Morse, who returned earlier in the day, stayed in a guest room in the attic. Police were stationed around the house overnight on August 4th, and during this shift, one of the officers claims to have seen Lizzie Enter the cellar with Alice, carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. 
The officer stated that he saw both women leave the cellar and then Lizzie returned alone. He looked into the cellar and was only able to see Lizzie bent over the sink. On the morning of August 5th, John left the house but was mobbed by so many people out front that the police had to escort him back into the house. News of the murder spread through Fall River like a wildfire, and on that first day, hundreds of people gathered in front of the Borden house. The next morning, the crowd had grown to more than 1,500. And of of course, the crowds are going to gather. Not only were the murders brutal and shocking, but it was quickly made people start to fear that there was a killer on the loose. Because when this happened in 1892, the murderous rampage of Jack the Ripper was still fresh in everyone's minds. Jack the Ripper attacked numerous female sex workers in London's East End between 1888 and 1891. And while it happened on another continent, the murders were so horrific that the word of the killings became worldwide news. At least five victims were found, although there are uh, more there are people who believe that there were more uh, victims than that that were from the Ripper. You knew what I meant. I'm out of my mind. <laughs> uh, the killer cut the throats of the victims and then removed some of their internal organs. The Jack the Ripper case remains unsolved to this day. And it's one that, of course, I mean, is is so fascinating to so many. I feel like there's been so many TV shows, movies, all of the oh, above, yeah. books about Jack the Ripper. It's uh, it's a fascinating one, or or one that fascinates many. Uh, listen, this is truly intriguing. I already am concocting my own batshit theories, oh. which I cannot wait to get into. But for now, let's take a quick break. I need to get another glass of wine. Let's hit the can, and we'll be right back with more about Lizzie Borden on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are discussing the famous, infamous case of Lizzie Borden. Uh, We left off talking about the crime. Let's talk about who they think was going to do the time. I'm so sorry. Uh, (laughs) I think you're going to get into the investigation now is the point. (laughs) 
you never stop getting cuter. Ah, oh, bless. I'm gonna out. say it, and and now after that, I'm gonna go twenty four. <laughs> I'm gonna just start shouting numbers at you to the point where I forget why I'm doing it, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I say eight, and I'm like, wait, <laughs> so young, so yeah. young, yeah. Uh, So August 6th, an editorial in the Fall River paper criticized the police for inaction in the Borden case. And maybe the police took that criticism to heart because later that day, they finally conducted a more thorough search of the house, including inspecting Lizzie's clothing and searching the basement. In the basement, police found four hatchets, a rusty claw-headed hatchet, a dusty hatchet, that seemed to have been barely used, a hatchet blade that was covered in ashes with a handle that had been broken, and a hatchet with residue of dried blood and hair. Police stated that the broken handle on a hatchet head seemed to be a recent break based on the wood fiber, and the hatchet head itself appeared to be covered in fresh ash as though someone was trying to make it look like it had been down there for a very long time. That same day, Emma and Lizzie published their offer of a reward for $5,000 to, quote, anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Mr. Andrew J. Borden and wife. (laughs) Even in death. Even in death. Yep. Uh, August 6th was also the day of Abby and Andrew's funerals. Uh, But the coroner had more questions and wanted to do a deeper investigation. So after the funeral, the bodies were taken from the graves and brought back to the house where the victims' heads were removed. Uh, The bodies were buried again at Oak Grove Cemetery. Their heads would later be buried at the gravesite at at the foot of the bodies. Um, but, But, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this. More on the skulls later. (laughs) Gosh, I wish I meant the Paul Walker, Joshua Jackson movie. I thought it was Devin Sawa, and I was about to mention it. So thank you very much. Oh, well, now I'm second-guessing myself. We're going to need to find out by the time this is done. Definitely Joshua Jackson. So we we agree on that. Yeah. I love that I assumed Paul Walker, but... No, I think it was Paul Walker. I don't know why Devin Sawa in my mind. Oh, he's he's basically Paul Walker and Joshua Jackson visually together. Oh, he is. Yeah, you're right. Well, shout out to the 90s. Thank you. So if this wasn't enough to happen in a single day, that night of August 6th, the mayor and a police officer visited the Borden home to inform Lizzie that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning on August 7th, Alice claims she entered the kitchen and found Lizzie setting a blue dress on fire. When asked about it, Lizzie said the dress was covered in paint. And some people find this a little too odd, as the Bordens were known for turning old clothing into rags, not destroying them. Because remember, Andrew was cheap as hell. Right. But at this point, Andrew was dead, so was Lizzie trying to finally get rid of something old instead of finding another use for it as like a an F.U. to her dad? Who knows? Maybe. 
Or was the dress what Lizzie was wearing when she slaughtered her parents? (laughs) (laughs) And she's trying to cover her tracks. Well, before we look into Lizzie too far, let's look at some of the other suspects in this case. Yes. First, I also love that I just so boldly slaughtered her parents. I'm on another plane. So, John Morse. As you may recall, he was the brother of Andrew's first wife, Sarah, and he appeared to be the only real friend that Andrew had in life. At one point, the men were in a casket-making business together, but that ended when John chose to move west when he was around the age of 20. He went to Minnesota, then Illinois, before settling in Iowa, where he remained for 25 years as a horse breeder. Police were skeptical of John because of, in their words, he provided, quote, an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. Interesting. Like he memorized the number of the streetcar he was riding in at the time of Andrew Borden's death and even recalled the number on the streetcar conductor's hat. The conductor didn't recall seeing John on the streetcar that morning, but did recall seeing six priests who John had previously claimed were fellow passengers. But is it like he saw them get on while he was walking? Like, doesn't mean he was necessarily there. Yeah. You know, you never know. Uh, And multiple people said they could place John in town at the time of the murders. But do we trust these people? We don't trust anyone. (laughs) Nope. That's where I'm at. Uh, Not to mention that John returned to the house from this supposed visit in the morning and wandered around the backyard, which was full of pear trees. And he like picked up some random pears from the ground and ate them while he was wandering the backyard. And then he entered the house and was shocked to find it full of police. Somehow he completely missed the mass of activity happening at the front of the house and went straight to the backyard. Which is very sketchy to me. Mm. Especially because he just happened to arrive in town the night before the murders. The timing of the visit is suspicious. Not to mention he arrived at the house with very few possessions, which made some question why he'd travel so far for an undetermined amount of time and yet bring so little with him. But what would John's motive be? Well, he claimed at one point that he knew Andrew was working on a will. Is it possible that John was told he'd be in the will, then found out he wasn't and he snapped, especially if Andrew's wife and her family were in the will? I could see John being angry if Andrew left out his first wife and her family. It would almost seem like Andrew was acting like Sarah never existed. Now it should be noted, a will was never found. So we don't know what may or may not have been in it, I'm just speculating that it could be possible that John got angry at the contents of the will, killed the Bordens, and then destroyed the will to hide his motive. I'm just saying. Uh, Now, since there was a chunk of time between Abby and Andrew's death, one can assume that the killer was in the house the entire time. The closets in the house were tiny, and the inner doors were all locked, so the idea that a stranger could enter the home kill Abby, hide for over an hour, kill Andrew, and then escape without being seen or heard feels, I don't know, unlikely. 
So then you think it must be someone who is already in the house. Or maybe someone who's familiar with the house's layout. Well, some people have suggested. What about Emma Borden? Now, it is common knowledge that Emma was out of town at the time of the murders. Some say she was off visiting an elderly relative. Some say she was off with a potential suitor. Rumor has it that Emma had fallen in love with a man who was a member of a lower class and that they wanted to get married, but Andrew was opposed. Now, if that's true, that is one heck of a motive. But I'm less likely to believe it as Emma spent the rest of her life alone. And if she was truly in love and her father was the only thing preventing her from being with the man she loved, then why wouldn't they have been together after her father's death? So it seems that she was visiting friends or family as opposed to a lover. But was she? Some have suggested that since she was only 20 minutes away, she could have taken a car or a train back to town, murdered Abby and Andrew, traveled back to Fairhaven so she was out of town when she received word of their deaths. There is no evidence that this actually happened, but at the same time, there is little known about Emma at all. There are no records of her education, her love life, etc. There are even very few photos of her in existence. It's also not known how she felt about living below their means. Uh, it seemed to bother Lizzie more than Emma. Emma just seemed more the type that just wanted to live a quiet life. But I have nothing to base that on. Sure. I will also say quickly, it wasn't in my notes, but I remember it from something that I read. According to my research... Uh, Emma was got a she got a telegram saying, hey, something terrible has happened. You need to come home. The doctor sent this himself. There were multiple trains that Emma could have taken to come back as soon as she got the message, but she didn't take the first train or the second train or the third train. She didn't take a train until like 6 p.m. at night. So she found out about it hours before and multiple trains left this town before she bothered coming back. So did she not, was she not in a hurry because she knew what was going on already? Or she knew what the plan was and wasn't interested to see it, had to collect herself? Who knows? My point is, Heck yeah, I remembered it. <laughs> it just, it just You're doing took great. me a bit. Took me a bit. You're doing great. Oh boy. Uh, so if we're considering people who are familiar with the house and people who were home at the time, that only leaves us with two suspects. One being the live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan. Bridget emigrated from Ireland in 1883 and started to work for the Borden family as their live-in maid in 1889. No one is sure about Bridget's birth date, but it is estimated that at the time of the murders, she was in her mid-twenties. From all accounts, it seemed that Bridget genuinely loved her job, and if she was angry at anyone in the house, wouldn't she be angrier at Emma and Lizzie for refusing to call her by her actual name? They referred to her as Maggie, their former maid, but Abby and Andrew called Bridget by her real name. Some have also suggested that Bridget and Lizzie were in a relationship and that Abby and Andrew found out about it 
and had to be silenced. But of course, there is no proof of that. So could that be the truth? Maybe. But I'm not sure I'm convinced. I just think if there was a relationship that Lizzie would have called Bridget by her real name. Yeah. And I don't know why I'm harping on this specific topic. It just, I mean, maybe she was trying to just keep up the ruse. So it seemed like she didn't care, but deep down she did. I don't know. So then there's one more suspect I want to mention briefly before we get to the woman of the hour. Yep. I don't know. I'm out of my mind. Uh, Some have suggested the killer was William Borden, Andrew's illegitimate son. What? Now, there are books based on the fact that this guy exists, but I can't find proof. Like this person who wrote book and was like, hey, look, here's my proof of this guy. I can't find proof that that guy exists. Um, Another author claims that he found the William, um, but that it turns out it was a different William. I don't know. But this one author claims William tried and failed to extort money from Andrew. Um, Whether he did or not, I don't know. Is there a secret son from another relationship? I mean, people people were talking. When he married Abby, she was like 36. She'd never been married before, had no kids. Everyone was surprised that if he was going to take a second wife, he wouldn't go for a younger woman who could potentially give him a son that he'd always wanted. So it's interesting he chose, chose an older woman who probably wasn't going to have more kids. Or maybe they were just straight up not interested in having more. I don't know, but... The idea of him having an illegitimate son somewhere is fascinating to me. Yeah, that is interesting. That's that's the kind of stuff you're going to read about in People. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so our suspect list has now dwindled down to just Lizzie Borden. For one thing, Lizzie was inconsistent with her conversations with the police. She stated at one point she removed her father's boots, helped him into slippers, But obviously, that was a lie. The idea that Lizzie randomly told Bridget about a sale that afternoon, as though she was trying to get her out of the house? I want to know, did Lizzie often tell Bridget about sales? Was this odd behavior? If it was normal, I'll let it go. If it was the first time it ever happened, then I'm super suspicious about it. Lizzie claimed that she was outside in the barn at the time of the murders. At first, she claimed she was getting lead to make sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip. But then she told someone else she needed lead to repair a window that was broken. And at first, she told police she'd heard some sort of groan, scraping noise, distress call when she entered the house. Two hours later, she claimed, oh, I actually didn't hear anything. There was also a moment when she repeatedly said that Abby received a note and left the house, and yet no note was ever found, and no one ever came forward claiming to be the author of the note. There was no evidence that Abby left the house at all that day. Lizzie told police she was annoyed by the sounds of her uncle, father, and stepmother conversing downstairs that morning, so she had to shut her bedroom door. So that already shows where her, uh, Annoyance level is, I suppose, also the fact that she was willingly telling the police, oh, they were irritating. It's like, well, I don't know if that was the move, Lizzie, but she was found not guilty. So what do I know? Yeah. 
so Dr. Bowen later testified that after the murders, he prescribed Lizzie a double dose of morphine to help her sleep. He claimed the side effects of the morphine could account for Lizzie's confusion. And I know she could have been in shock. In a moment like that, you never know how someone will react. So maybe she's telling the truth that she's innocent, which brings us right to the back to the night of August 6th, 1892, when police informed Lizzie she was a suspect in the murders of her father and stepmother. During one of the searches of the house, officers found a pail of small towels covered with blood soaking in the wash cellar. When an officer asked Lizzie about them, she said she had, quote, fleas, which was a local euphemism for menstruation, and that they'd been soaking for days. And I'm going to say it, I don't know if anywhere else used that particular phrase, but I would like to either bring it back or just straight up adopt it. Yeah. Because what is more of a pest than fleas? And the answer is a period. And I just feel like a collective, very loud, mm-hmm, from like some of the true crew. I feel like it. Yep. So Lizzie then referred to the off- referred the officer to Dr. Bowen, who vouched for her saying it had been explained to him and it was all right. I'm sure that's what it was, which is amazing how much this doctor has faith in in Lizzie. Yeah. Um, when Bridget was asked, uh, she said she had not noticed the pail until that day. And if she, it had really been there two days before, as Lizzie had claimed, Bridget said she would have seen the pail earlier and then immediately put the contents in the wash. Because that's literally what she did. It's <laughs> so, It was kind of her job, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this fleas defense was used again two days after the murder when Lizzie gave police the dress that she allegedly wore on the morning of August 4th. When the dress was inspected, investigators found a tiny spot of blood on the hem. But since they didn't have the science to test the blood at that point, Lizzie's word was taken as gospel. And you also did not talk about it at that point in polite society. So all she'd have to do is be like, mm, that's happening. And all the men are like fingers in their ear. La, la, la. We can't, we can't, we can't know. And then they're off. Right. So I found that wildly fascinating. Uh, between August 9th and 15th, an inquest was held into the deaths of the Bordens. It was closed to the public, and Lizzie took the stand each day. It would be the only time that she testified in court under oath. Partway through the inquest on August 11th, the judge, district attorney, and police marshal determined that Lizzie was, quote, probably guilty. So she was officially arrested and sent to county jail. On August 12th, Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty and was moved to a jail in Taunton? eight miles or 13 kilometers north of Fall River, as it was the nearest jail that had a long-term area for women. At the preliminary hearing, Lizzie's defense attorney delivered a rousing closing argument. The crowd erupted into loud applause, but the judge determined that Lizzie was probably guilty and should just remain jailed until a superior court trial. Neither the attorney general, who typically prosecuted capital crimes, nor the district attorney, were eager to haul Lizzie into Superior Court, though both believed in her guilt. There were holes in the police's evidence, 
And since Lizzie's arrest, there had been a massive wave of support of her innocence. Women's groups rallied to Lizzie's side, especially the Women's Christian Temperance Union, suffragists, and women from the Hill. Lizzie's supporters protested that at the trial, she would not be judged by a jury of her peers because women, as non-voters, did not have the right to serve on juries at the time. The district attorney brought the case before a grand jury in November 1892. Uh, He was not sure he would secure an indictment. 23 jurors convened to hear the case on the charges of murder. They adjourned with no action. The grand jury reconvened December 1st and heard dramatic testimony. Testimony from Lizzie's BFF herself, Alice Russell. Oh! Alice testified that shortly after the death of Andrew, Lizzie sent Bridget to summon Alice. Alice then wanted to be supportive of her friend, so she slept in the Borden house for a few nights after the murders. Even though the victims were both stretched out on mortician boards in the dining room, I still just can't. Uh, Alice had testified at the inquest, preliminary hearing, and earlier before the grand jury, but she never disclosed one important detail. Distressed over her omission, she consulted a lawyer who said she had to tell the district attorney. So on December 1st, Alice returned to the grand jury. She testified that on August 7th, the Sunday morning after the murders, Alice witnessed Lizzie pull a dress from a shelf in the pantry closet and burn it in the stove. This made the grand jury indict Lizzie the next day. Wow. And I'm going to say it. If I, if there's a horrible murder in your home and I come over and I see you burning a dress, I saw nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm just saying, Absolutely. Lizzie, Absolutely. get yourself a better Christy. Well, <laughs> so they're the I like that I'm... I like that I'm the potential killer in this scenario. Um, well, I mean, if in the case of like, sure, who's burning the dress, who's not? No, no, no. I get you. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I've, oh God, I've, 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 I'm taking feverish notes. Oh, it's all over the place. Uh, so they decide to indict her, but then things start to drag at this point, and the attorney general ends up bowing out of the case in April 1893, as he'd been ill, and his doctor said he probably couldn't withstand the demands of the Borden trial. And with their father's money at their disposal, Emma and Lizzie were able to afford the best legal team in Massachusetts. The trial started June 5th, 1893, in New Bedford. The jury was made up of 12 men from outside of Fall River. Half of the jurors were farmers, and the rest were mostly tradesmen. The main players at the trial were lead prosecutor Hasiah Knowlton and his second chair, a man named William Moody. And when I heard that name, I immediately thought of the Christmas episode of Saved by the Bell when Kelly Kapowski is working at the mall and she needs to ask her boss, Mr. Moody, if she can leave early. And he says, I'm Mr. Moody. I'm in a bad moody. Uh, <laughs> I remember cracks, that now, too. It cracks me up every time, which brings me to an insatiable side note. Thank you. For those who want to know 
and I know you're out there. Blanche was always Team Zach Morris. Always. Although if I could pick a moment in time to free Zach, it'd be the college years. Because he filled out right. Mm. And yes, Blanche's love of Zach went so deep that she would never consider that bastard Jeff. But she would consider Jesse's cocky stepbrother from New York, Eric Tramer. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so just know that. Uh, the most notable figure in the trial was George Robinson, the lead defense counsel. He was governor of Massachusetts from 1884 to 1886 and was elected as a representative in the United States Congress for four terms. So one of the most prominent points of discussion in this trial was the hatchet head that was found in the basement. The prosecution was convinced it was the murder weapon, believing the murderer removed the handle because it was covered in blood. One police officer testified the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head. But then another officer contradicted it, which is not exactly helping the police credibility at this point. A Harvard chemist reported he found no human blood on the four hatchets that the police retrieved from the cellar. The hatchet that was covered in blood and hair was determined to belong to an animal, they assume like a cow. Uh, a doctor also testified that the killer would have had a considerable amount of blood on them and pointed out that Lizzie saw her neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, within minutes of Andrew's death and that Adelaide saw no blood at all. No bloody clothing was found at the house. Um, Alice claims that when she arrived on the scene, Lizzie was wearing a blue dress and that at some point during the day, she changed into a pink and white outfit. Alice testified to witnessing Lizzie burn a blue dress uh, that Lizzie claimed had paint on it. And the jury might have found that suspicious, but then Emma took the stand to testify that not only was burning the dress her idea, but that it was a family custom to burn a garment that was irredeemably soiled. Which is the first time anyone heard that was a family custom. Interesting. Uh, based on the body temperatures, the state of the blood at the scene, and an examination of the stomach contents of the victims, it was stated that Abby died at least one hour before Andrew. And since Andrew was found uh, with a gold ring, a silver watch and more than $80 cash in his pocket, which is equivalent to like $2,400 in 2021, uh, the prosecution was quick to point out that robbery, probably not the motive. So if it wasn't an intruder looking for money, then it started to look like Lizzie was the only possible suspect. The defense argued that Lizzie had been out in the barn at the time. She couldn't have done it. But when police inspected the barn, and specifically the loft where Lizzie claimed to have been, he noticed the floor was thick with dust and said there was no evidence that anyone had been there recently. Interesting. But before the jury could start thinking that Lizzie might actually be guilty, I remind you, Lizzie's legal team was the best. They knew that at the time, in court, men had all of the legal power and that Lizzie could influence the jury by presenting herself as a helpless maiden. So Lizzie was instructed to wear black. She showed up to court in a very, very tight corset and flowing black dresses, holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand 
and a fan in the other. Seeing her in court, journalists reported that they believed there was no way that this, quote, quiet, modest, and well-bred girl could possess the physical strength, let alone the moral degeneracy to wield a weapon with skull-cracking force. Oh, boy. And if the jury needed more proof that Lizzie wasn't capable of such a brutal crime, when the prosecution prosecution suggested that they would bring in the actual skulls of the victims to show the massive holes in the heads, uh, Lizzie responded by fainting. Just at the mere thought of them coming in, she she was overcome. Mm. Hosiah Knowlton, the Bristol County District Attorney, was convinced of Lizzie's guilt, so much so that his closing argument lasted five hours. Stop. (laughs) But it didn't seem to affect the jury much, as the defense's closing argument stated, quote, morally and physically, it was impossible for a young woman defendant. I don't... Okay. The jury hears all of this and then gets sent to deliberate. They were sent to deliberate at 3.24 p.m., and they announced that their deliberations were completed at 420 or 4.32 p.m. And while that may seem like the jury made their choice very quickly, I do want to point out that they later admitted, after they made their decision, they waited an hour before saying they'd made their decision, so it wouldn't appear as though they'd made a hasty decision, which means they reached a consensus in eight minutes. Jesus. On June 20th, 1893, the jury announced its verdict. Lizzie Borden was found not guilty. And some may say, did those men really acquit her simply because she was a woman? Yes. Yes, they did. (laughs) But you know what else played in the defense's favor? Another axe murder in town. Holy shitballs. On May 31st, 1893, just five days before the trial started, Fall River was setting was the setting to another brutal axe murder. Stephen Manchester, a dairy farmer, came home from his milk deliveries to find his 22-year-old daughter, Bertha, lying beside the black stove in their kitchen, hacked to death. Stephen and Bertha lived alone, and not that it matters for the case, but apparently Stephen's previous two wives left him because he was, quote, cheap and mean. Oh. (laughs) The autopsy report stated that there were, quote, 23 distinct and separate axe wounds on the back of the skull and its base. So the crime appeared to be committed with a similar object, as in the Borden murders. Both crimes were committed in the morning. There was little blood left at the scene, and nothing of value was taken. On the day the trial started, a Portuguese immigrant in his late 20s, or late teens, early 20s, was arrested. He worked on the Manchester farm and had previously gotten into an argument with Stephen. The killer arrived at the farm hoping to find Stephen, but found Bertha instead. Some suggested that this killer was also responsible for the Borden murders, so the police investigated the killer and found that he had not entered the United States until April 1893, which was months after the Bordens were killed. However, that specific information 
that he wasn't even in the country at the time, was released after the jury had been selected and already sequestered. Oh, So wow. the jury did not get that piece of information, which feels like it would have been something good to know at the time. Uh, not to mention, during the trial, the jury was not allowed to hear about Lizzie's alleged attempt at buying Prusik acid the day before the murders. The prosecution argued that the attempted purchase of poison was evidence of intent. But defense uh, said the fact was not relevant, as Lizzie was on trial for killing these two people with a sharp instrument. Nothing else. Oh, boy. And because of that, the Prusik acid was not brought up during the trial. But also at the trial, the police admitted to not doing a proper search of the house on the day of the murders because Lizzie wasn't really feeling well. When the verdict was announced, the courtroom audience, women's groups, and most of the press cheered. After spending nine months in jail, Lizzie was released. No one was ever charged for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. So like some sort of... <laughs> over-the-top game show host, I'm going to bring us into a section that I've entitled, Where Are They Now? Where are they now? I mean, they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Because this happened in the 1890s, so obviously none of them are around in 2021. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking when you, when you said, where are they now? I thought, yeah. I thought underground, but I, I, I am assuming that there's a clever <laughs> twist. I was just very excited uh, for that name. And then I was like, oh, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I, what I get meaning is what happened? Where did they go after the verdict yes. happened? So the Bordens live in Maid, Bridget Sullivan. Some speculated that Bridget was Lizzie's accomplice in the murders. At the trial, Bridget took the stand during every phase. But in the end, her testimony didn't hurt or help Lizzie. So some claim that after the trial, Lizzie paid off Bridget and that she returned to Ireland. Well, she did leave Fall River, although I don't think she went to Ireland. But from what I can tell, Bridget moved to Anaconda, Montana sometime before 1897 and married a man named John Sullivan in 1905. But a curious story that I read about Bridget. In 1943... Bridget contracted a case of pneumonia. Believing she was going to die, she called her closest friend and was like, you need to come over. I have a secret that I, I need to get off my chest. But the friend was not from town, so by the time the friend arrived, Bridget was already on the mend and realized, I'm actually not dying. So the friend was like, okay, I'm here. What was the big secret? And she went, oh, you know what? It wasn't anything. The only time that Bridget ever spoke about the Bordens was later in life when she said she always liked Lizzie. Bridget died in Butte, Montana, March 25th, 1948. Accuracy side note. Now, some say Bridget was 73 at the time of her death. But that would mean that she was 17 when the Borden murders occurred. And I'm not saying that's not possible, but most of the things I read claim that no one knew what year she was born, so her age at the time of the murders was estimated to be 25, 
And if that's true, she would have been closer to 81 when she died. But if, in fact, she was 17 at the time of the deaths, that adds a whole new layer to the theory that people have thought that maybe Bridget and Lizzie were lovers. Because at the time, Lizzie was 32. Right. So, I mean, it's also the fact that they were the only people home at the time. Could things have, like, they work together, clean up, deal with one? Like, who knows? Um, it was proven uh, that Abby died before Andrew. And that meant that Andrew's estate was passed to Emma and Lizzie. If it had been proven that Andrew died first, the estate would have gone to Abby. And even though she was dead, that means it would have gone to her family. So the fact they, if, if you wanted the money, you needed to be very certain on who was dying first. That is just a point I wanted to point out. So it feels like it could be a calculated choice. Specifically. Yes. Right. Uh, 20 days after the verdict, Lizzie and Emma moved to a large Victorian house at 7 French Street on the hill. Oh. The house had a staff of live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Lizzie dubbed the house Maplecroft. In 1897, a warrant was issued for Lizzie's arrest in Providence, Rhode Island, over a shoplifting charge. It is said that Lizzie made restitution on that. Mm. Around the time of Emma's departure, um, which I love that I'm now realizing I didn't get to, but, oh, fuck, my notes are all off. We'll get there. Uh, Lizzie started to go by the name Lisbeth A. Borden. Possibly in an attempt to, like, wipe the slate clean, as it were. Uh, but regardless as to what name she went by, the people who once supported her and had even cheered when she got acquitted turned on her and shunned her completely. The Central Congregational Church, which Lizzie financially supported by maintaining a pew there, wouldn't even allow her to come into the church until 1905. Oh, Lizzie was stared at in public to the point where she withdrew to her home, but even there she was pestered by neighborhood kids who would hound her with pranks. In 1905, Lizzie threw a party for an actress named Nance O'Neill, and something about this party set off a huge fight between Lizzie and Emma, to the point where Emma moved out and never saw her sister again. Wow! Some have suggested that Nance and Lizzie were a couple as they were inseparable for two years, but I cannot confirm or deny. Mm. But what I can confirm, around this time, Emma consulted a reverend about, quote, happenings at the French street house of which she strongly disapproved. Some suggested maybe Emma was referring to the handsome young man who was hired as a coachman, while others suggested Emma was referring to Lizzie and Nance's relationship. Interesting. Now, despite being ostracized by the community, Lizzie remained in Fall River for the rest of her life. 
Emma Borden moved to New Hampshire in 1923 for the sake of her health, but also to escape the publicity of a release of a book about the murders. At some point in 1926, Lizzie had her gallbladder removed, and it seems she never fully recovered. On June 1st, 1927, Lizzie Borden died of pneumonia at the age of 67. On that same day, Emma, who was living in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire, fell and broke her hip. Emma died nine days later from chronic nephritis at the age of 76. Whoa. Both Lizzie and Emma are buried in the family burial plot in Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River, along with their parents, sister Alice, and stepmother, Abby. Prior to her death, Lizzie planned her own funeral, even leaving a list of people who should be invited. Uh, I read, and I don't know if this was accurate, but they then showed up to the funeral and were told, oh, that happened yesterday? So I don't know if this was like a, I made you go out of your way. And it wasn't even there. Like, I don't know if this was one last, like, F you to people, or if something got confused or what, but... I kind of hope it was one last F you to people. Yeah. Not that I'm team Lizzie, but still. Well. Um, at the time of her death, Lizzie was estimated to be worth over $250,000, which is equivalent to nearly $5 million in 2021. She owned houses, office buildings, shares in several utilities, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000, the equivalent to $600,000 now, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and nearly $10,000 in 2021 money uh, in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Oh, interesting. But I notice not of Abby's. Yeah. Or her sister's. Yeah, that's true. Or her mother. Great point. Mm. Uh, She also left some money to some friends and family members, Some who knew her later in life remembered Lizzie for her great kindness and generosity and fondness for children and animals. It is said that at the time of her death, Emma was worth $450,000, equivalent to about $7 million in 2021, most of which she left to charity. The house where Abby and Andrew were murdered was turned into a bed and breakfast in 1996, where visitors could even sleep in the very room where Abby was murdered, and then enjoy the same breakfast that they did on that fateful morning. There's also a gift shop featuring featuring an axe-wielding Lizzie Borden bobblehead, t-shirts that say, I survived the night at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, and hatchet earrings. In January 2021, the house went up for sale for $2 million after the current owners retired. The B&B also serves as a museum, with the house being decorated just as it was at the time of the murders. The original hardware and doors are intact, and the property's 19th century decor has been painstakingly replicated. Artifacts linked to the case are on display, including the hatchet head. And while we're on the topic of Borden family murders, I'd be remiss if I didn't bust out Borden family murders that I haven't talked about yet. Side note. Yes, please. And I know what you're thinking. More? How could there be more? Majority of the family is dead. Well, this time, it doesn't involve Lizzie at all. It involves her great uncle, 
Lodwick Borden. Lodwick's brother, Abraham Borden, was Andrew Borden's father. In his lifetime, Lodwick would have four wives, which at the time wasn't uncommon, as women often died in childbirth from complications, uh, and it was not uncommon for a man to suddenly be like, okay, next one. Yeah. I guess sometimes it's not that uncommon now. Well. Um, The four wives on record are Maria Briggs, Eliza Darling, Eliza Chase, and Ruhama Crocker. This side note, we're focusing on wife number two, Eliza Darling Borden. This is going to get dark before it gets light. Okay. All brace yourselves. Eliza had three children in rapid succession. The oldest at this point was three years old. So they had those kids. In 1848, when Eliza was 37, she dropped two of her three children into the cellar cistern, went upstairs and used her husband's straight razor and slit her own throat. The three children were Holder, Eliza Ann, and Maria. And it is said that the oldest, Maria, is the child who survived the incident. Some paranormal investigators who visit the Borden house today try and contact the spirits of these lost Borden children. Some claim to have heard children's laughter on the second and third floors of the bed and breakfast, which mean I'll never go there. Not that I think I could anyway, but still. Uh, And since I've just bummed you all out, I'll lift your spirits quickly by saying, from what I've read, Maria Borden went on to marry and have children of her own. So for the sake of the bright light at the end of this tunnel, I'm choosing to believe she lived a happy and beautiful life after that happened in her childhood. Uh, But experts today suggest Eliza may have suffered from postpartum depression, but I'm just surprised that there was another incident of graphic death in the Borden family tree although it's awful regardless as to which family it happens in. During Lizzie's trial, when she was examined uh, to determine if she was mentally competent and able to stand trial, questions about the mental state of the Borden family were brought up, and it was suggested that maybe Lizzie inherited madness from Eliza Borden. This, of course, was shot down because Eliza was a Borden through marriage, so they're saying that her bloodline didn't coexist with the Bordens. The Borden murders and Lizzie's trial received widespread publicity throughout the United States, and even though it happened more than 120 years ago, it remains a huge part of American pop culture. They have depicted it in numerous films, theatrical productions, literary works, and folk rhymes. The rhyme's creator is unknown, although some claim that it was just done to help sell newspapers, others attribute its creation to the very well-known Mother Goose. And for those who aren't familiar, may I present the infamous skipping rope rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Never heard that in my life. Interesting. I've only ever heard the first part of it, but also the inaccuracy is painful. 
<laughs> to me. Upsetting because to you, yes. there were not 40 or 41. There were a lot, but calm down. Uh, still, I get that it was... Uh, who I don't know what Mother Goose was doing. I also don't think Mother Goose did that. No. That's not the point. Mm-mm. My point is, reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm an unhinged woman who loves Dave Grohl. You're doing great. You feel... Um, your energy is jagged, but I think in a, a good little, way. I think in a good yeah. way. And listen, I have so many thoughts. I've taken sure. extensive notes. I've numbered my pages. Let's hit the bathroom one last time. I'm going to get one more glass of wine. We'll be right back to talk about our theories about Lizzie Borden on True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Um, Listen, coming into this episode, as I said from the beginning. Yeah. Truly, I really honestly did not know anything about Lizzie Borden. All I knew was that I thought she had murdered her parents with an axe. I didn't know it was a stepmother. I didn't know any details. So this, these theories I'm about to lay on you. Truly, Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. just concocted as we've, as I've listened to your amazing journey through. So I've numbered my pages. I've taken notes all over the place. So I'll go through my notes Kind of, you know, not wanting to miss anything. And then, you know, we're building to bigger theories towards the end. Sure. So, (laughs) I just love that my notes start as follows. Hug smugglers unite. Coffins cheap. Cut off feet? (laughs) (laughs) That's starting to sound like a... The beginning of a song, doesn't it? it? Oh my God, it's going to be a rap. <laughs> Listen, you've never come back from the Tupac and Biggie episodes. Um, nope, she's okay. a new woman. There she goes. Yep. All right, so, okay, that was page one. All right, hold on two <laughs> seconds here. I just got to make sure I go through these right. Okay, then my next ones were seal skin cape, gross, <laughs> coffee and cookie breakfast, yum. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I promise I'm going to get into real theories in a second. No, I. this is everywhere I want it to go. Thank you Just very much. That. Thank you very much. 
Here we go. And I'm being very serious right now. Yeah. First thing that struck me. Mm-hmm. Lizzie and Emma go away on this trip. Yep. What happened on that trip? It sounded to me from the way that you talked about it, it was like they disliked Abby so much. They wanted to be away from her and away from the Mm -hmm. dad. It felt like this was one of the first times, perhaps speculation, they were spending an extended amount of time just the two sisters, just the two gals. Sure. What was talked about on that trip? Because the other point I wanted to bring up is I find Mm -hmm. it very interesting that they took such offense to their stepmother, Abby's sister, Sarah, getting this property and demanded that they get their own. And then, of -hmm. course, as soon as they had it for a dollar, sold it back to their father for $5,000. And then we know that they offered $5,000, the exact same amount, as a reward for any details about their father and Abby's deaths. Oh, you were taking notes. Yeah. I, I am not, not kidding you. Yeah. Hyper fixating like you would not believe. Yeah. Um. Again, I was so interested in all of this. So to me, it's like, is it possible all of that was to ensure that their father paid their own reward for, you know, these tips about their death? Because what I am alleging- The theory I'm throwing out there Mm -hmm. is a theory that is going to be based in a quote from one of my favorite movies of all time, my favorite comedy of all time, a little film called Clue. And that quote is, they all did it. (laughs) Go with me on this. Oh, I can't wait. Also, shout out to our true crew member, Helen. I know she loves the movie Clue. And uh, that means that uh, she and I got a lot in common. So. Yeah. And you're both damn adorable. Thank you very much. Here's what I have to say. Yeah. What if Emma and Lizzie go away on this trip together and Lizzie's like, or whoever, but I'm going to say that Lizzie perhaps could have been the the, uh, instigator. The instigator. Thank you for that word. And And she was like, God, don't you hate this whole thing? With Abby. Don't you hate this whole thing mm-hmm. with Sarah? She perhaps gets Emma riled up. And Emma's like, well, what are we supposed to do about it? And she's like, well, guess what? Uncle John's coming to town. Our biological mother's brother. He'd do anything for us. And Emma's like, I don't want to be a part of this. I can't do this. And she's like, you'll be away. You can go away. And I'll talk to Uncle John about things. I'll Uh protect you. Why is Lizzie so invested? Let's suggest she perhaps is in a relationship with the maid, Bridget. Perhaps she did jump on calling her Maggie as a way of hiding the fact that she was in a relationship with her. Now, yes, is it possible she was a teen and we're into some very problematic territory? Yes. Is it possible that much like you've told me, I look 26, is it possible that Bridget, you know, in later years was like, I'm only 71, when in reality she could have been older? I have I have a photo of Bridget, and they don't tell you when it's from, but it seemed like people seem to claim it's from the time she was working there, and she wasn't 17. Okay. So it's... 
But again, I don't know. It Who is knows? possible she just has a youthful glow and she lied. And it's also possible that people were like, oh, I have no idea. I think she was 73. Who knows? You know. So maybe she's got this relationship going on with Bridget. Yeah. So we know that Bridget had positive things to say about Lizzie, which feels weird, right? That she was like, I always liked Lizzie. Okay. So let's just, again, we're going with this batshit Lauren Ash. They all did it theory. So (laughs) Emma goes along with Lizzie's plan. Yeah. Bridget goes along with Bridget's, with, sorry, Lizzie's plan. Was Bridget sick? Who knows? But it's a great excuse to have her sick in the yard or sick in the basement or sick in the attic or wherever. Right? Yeah. Is it possible John had all of these hyper-detailed alibis, which does feel odd? And listen, I know that there are people out there um, and I speak as somebody who has a uh, brain that is not neurotypical. Um, is it possible that he was ne- neurodivergent in some way? And he did remember numbers. He did remember details about things that were like, oh, that's way too much detail. Yes, I do think that that's possible. Sure. Do I think that in terms of this theory I'm talking about, he was trying a little too hard? Perhaps. So perhaps he did go out. He remembered enough details to then run back to the house because he had a conversation with Lizzie where he was like, I don't like what your father's doing either. I don't like that he's giving some of his money to this new woman, Abby's sister. That should be going to you, my blood nieces, my sister's children. How dare he? I'm going to try and get him to make a will to give me money, to give you money. and then." In the moment, maybe, I don't know, what the chain of events, either Andrew refuses and wants to give, leave everything to Abby, so that pisses John off. Sure. Or, and or, he can't get what he wants, or uh, he just decides, you know what, Lizzie, I think you're right. And I'm not going to let you, a darling young thing, since we know that was the opinion about women at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you do this murder. So he goes out to make sure he has an alibi, rushes back, kills Abby. Perhaps, perhaps Lizzie watched. And so the reason why there was some blood on her dress, but she wasn't drenched in blood, was because she was watching from a distance. Because I don't need to explain to you, anyone who's watched a little show called Dexter will know <laughs> that blood spatter, right, is Travels. a thing. And if, if you have a hatchet and you are, are bludgeoning a, a human to death in their skull, I mean, that's, that's going to be, there's going to be blood and it's, I'm assuming, again, I'm not an expert, it's going to be on you. Sure. So it feels to me, again, because then we know her father came home and she did come outside right away and she wasn't covered in blood, quote unquote. Sure. Either she changed very quickly or is it possible Uncle John did the dirty work and the reason he was in the backyard eating pears wasn't because he came home and immediately went to the backyard, but because he had been home the whole time or had been home for longer than he claimed to be. Mm-hmm. He ran out, got his alibi, ran back, did these murders, went to the barn, whatever, what have you, 
got rid of the bloody clothes, was changing in the barn where he had preset clothes, and then came back in. Oh, I was just in the back. I just returned. And I came, I just came back in. Emma, knowing potentially about this whole plan, didn't rush back, as we know. Alice, Lizzie's best friend, is it possible Alice potentially could have maybe had some feelings for Lizzie? I'm going to drop everything. I am going to go and sleep in a house with dead bodies in it who are partially autopsied to be there for you. And you know I love you more than I love anything. But if you, Christy, the love of my life, my suggestion would be, let's get a hotel. (laughs) Right? Like, I would be like, maybe can we do anything to maybe get out of the house with the, and leave the bodies? Yeah. My point is, she went to a level that feels like she's trying to prove something. Is it possible when she spent the night that night, she finds out, oh my goodness, Lizzie did this to be with Bridget. She's not in love with me. Fuck this. I'm going to fuck her over at trial. Or potentially, another theory, in the heat of the moment, everything that's going on that night, do Lizzie and Alice that night in the heat of the moment have a dalliance? And then Alice thinks, oh my gosh, my friend who I've been in love with, we've had this connection now because I was so there for her. And then Lizzie reveals, sorry, actually, I'm not into you. And then Alice is like, well, guess what? I'm going to testify against you. The other point I wanted to make about Emma, because you're like, but why would she just go along with it? We knew she was in love with someone. We knew her father was against it. Is it possible? This person who we know was of a lower status, quote unquote, their terms, not ours, a lower, quote, status of the time. Sure. Is it possible he wanted to be with Emma for money, whatever? Maybe he didn't have great intentions. Or maybe she was more into him than he was into her. So she agrees to Lizzie's plan. Yeah, let's get rid of dad and Abby. Then I'll be free to live my life because I know your point, which was very valid, which was, but wouldn't they have been together? Isn't it possible this guy would have been like, I don't want to be with you. I was never that into you. Or your family is involved in some sort of double murder situation. I don't want to be a part of that. And if this person was of a, Mm -hmm. quote, lower status, who was potentially trying to social climb through whoever he tried to marry, do you think he was going to want to marry someone who is entangled in a double murder? My point being, is it possible that in her attempt to be supportive of getting her dad and Abby out of the way, she alienated this possible suitor? Interesting. Is it, and this is going to get weird. Could the possible suitor be John? Weird shit went down <laughs> in the dark times. And we just listen. Don't talk about it. Nothing would shock me. Yeah. Nothing would shock me. Look, I just I, feel like it is possible that there yeah. is a world where everyone somehow is connected to this in some way. In that Emma, Lizzie, John, and Bridget were all culpable not that they all committed the murder together but they were all culpable they all knew about it 
in some way, what have you. The other thing I wanted to say is that I don't know a lot psychologist hat on about kleptomania. The only detail that I do know about kleptomania is that it is often connected to a comorbidity, meaning it is rare that people only have kleptomania. Often people who have kleptomania also have a personality disorder, bipolar, interesting, something else. I am not suggesting that people with bipolar automatically are, have kleptomania. I am not suggesting that people with personality disorders automatically have kleptomania. In, of course. I'm not suggesting that at all. I am just saying that it is exceptionally rare that someone presents only with kleptomania. Because you also referred to Lizzie's, quote, dark times. It mm. suggests to me that perhaps there is a mental health situation that was happening with her. Does that make me think that automatically she's capable of of committing a double murder, double homicide? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. Does it make me think she could be capable of concocting a plan with other people? Sure. Yes, it does. Honestly, yes, it does. So the final thoughts that I have are written here. Animal Rescue League. It makes me like her a little bit. And (laughs) (laughs) of course, it's interesting to me that she went on to potentially have a relationship with another woman, this this Nance O'Neill yeah. uh, lady, which which feels like it fuels, again, whether Lizzie was involved with Bridget or not. It feels like, again, there is definitely, we know the time period plays a factor. Of course. It definitely feels like she probably felt a great disconnect, that she couldn't be herself. If all of that is true, again, this is, of course, speculation. Um, her own sister. When she finds out about Nance not being okay with it, that feels devastating, you know? So it feels like the stakes are exceptionally high for Lizzie. I guess the question being, are they so high she would kill? That's to be determined. Um, obviously, that's that's debatable. But I, the last point, there's two points I want to make. The first is, your father killing your prized pigeons is such a level of trauma. Um, If she was dealing with mental illness, mental health issues, excuse me, if she also was potentially struggling with her sexuality, and then the one thing she felt she had was this kinship with these birds. I know I'm sounding like Dina right now, but jokes aside. They're living for it. Thank you very much. Um, but jokes aside, if that was the one thing that she really felt like she had and then her father killed them with a hatchet, I, I think that that would be enough to make even the most non-struggling of people snap. <laughs> I mean, sure. I, I can't even begin to suggest what that would do to me if 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 my parental figure did sure. something like that to an animal I was caring for, like that's not something that I like, I don't know what that would do to me. Honestly, yeah. um, I'm not saying that I could kill again personally, but, but again, my theory is that I don't know that she physically did the killing. I honestly am suggesting, and I think there's something too. uncle John did the dirty work. 
and she was the one who just pulled the strings. That's my theory. Final thought. You mentioned, of course, um, that Bridget lived in a town called Anaconda. And all I could think for the rest of the episode was, my Anaconda don't. My Anaconda don't. Of course. My Anaconda don't commit murder, but maybe Lizzie did. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Can the True Crime and Cocktails uh, hip-hop album be Weird Al versions of hip-hop songs that we have, each song is about a case? That's brilliant. And I hope so. Because I want to pick the worst one to talk about Patsy Ramsey with. I also think there's there's one called Gin and Juice, and it's about O.J. Simpson. (laughs) Why am I giving all the ideas away for free? Why am I not settling this stuff? Oh, thank heaven. (laughs) (laughs) 7-Eleven. I'm not going to be happy until I get it. Just I just want one free Slurpee out of it. Come on, 7-Eleven. We can make Come that. on. Look. Anyway, those are my thoughts. I know I'm all over the place, but also I don't think I'm all over the place. I think there's no. something to what I'm saying. Uh, well, these are the thoughts I wrote down based on your thoughts. Please. These are my thoughts, thoughts. Thoughts, thoughts. One. God, I love this show. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's just, it's fun. It is. It's a good time. Uh, two. I love your passion. Thank you. Uh, three. Please quote Clue more often. I will. Four, Batshit Lauren might be my favorite. And five, it was all of them. (laughs) (laughs) They all did it. They all did it. I get it. Oh, yeah, that's compelling. Like there is the the moment that sticks out to me is the fact that the door was bolted from the inside when Andrew came home and tried to come in and couldn't get in the house. And so Bridget came and opened the door and she said she heard Lizzie laughing upstairs. And to that I say, was that Lizzie coming across the body of Abby? And she was elated to see her dead? And so that was her laughter? Could be. And also Bridget as the maid or you know, keeper of the house has to justify how did that door get locked without you knowing you keep the house. That's your job. You didn't see someone lock that door. So I feel like she had to say, oh, then I heard Lizzie laughing because that at least acknowledges that perhaps there was something else going on. Sure. I also find it fascinating. Um, I get that she was unwell and I'm not saying she shouldn't have had the opportunity to go lie down. But I find it fascinating that it that was okay. You know, if she's working in this household and then it was like, I'm just going to go lie down for a while. And it's like, did, she, did you did you do that because you knew you weren't going to get caught? Again. Or was she not lying down at all? I I also believe there is a world in which Bridget and John helped. Oh. And... And Lizzie, Lizzie would have instructed Bridget to, you know, say what she did about the bucket of bloody rags, right. et cetera, right? Like, she would have said, like, well, we can't be, we have to be, play it real. We can't make it sound, right? Like, it was yeah. like, Lizzie just sounded to me like she was so uber smart. And I 
could be completely wrong. But that's the vibe that I get is this is a very intelligent woman who, you know, could have potentially just wrote a story. (laughs) I get that. That they all fall more than you know, because, you know, of course, how much I love a story. Of course, I understand and respect someone that writes a story. So yes. I fully get that. Yes. Um, look, I, no joke, uh, we were, uh, we talked about this episode for a while and I didn't know very much. I was just like, oh yeah, like she killed people and then that's it. And so I didn't know much about it. And uh, I got to a point in research where I was just going to, literally come out and be like okay so yeah she did <laughs> reporting for true crime and, cockpit, and then just like end it right there right um i've written down a theory i i genuinely don't know what <laughs> what is on these pages but this is just where we're at yes please um So I think that Emma and Lizzie were growing tired of living below their means and that finding out their stepmother, who they did not like, was being given properties enraged them. I don't know if they came up with the plan together and that Emma left town so she wouldn't be suspected or if it was all Lizzie's plan and she chose a moment when Emma was out of town so that Emma wouldn't catch her in the act. But I know that when Lizzie was charged with the murders... Emma became the sole heir to the Borden fortune, and Emma used some of that money to pay for the very best lawyers for Lizzie, so she supported her sister throughout the whole trial, and maybe that's because she was part of the plot, or maybe it was because of their mother's deathbed confession or request of watch out for baby Lizzie. Uh, but after a few years, Emma moved out, and from what I can tell, they drifted apart, and when Lizzie died... Um, Emma didn't go to the funeral, although I guess she probably couldn't have because she broke, she'd broken her leg, but the fact that she died so soon after, was there some heartbreak because your sister was gone and you hadn't seen each other in almost 20 years? And I went into research thinking there's a rhyme about it. So of course Lizzie did it. And then I started reading about John and this potential illegitimate child. And then I was like, Maybe it wasn't Lizzie. And now I am so back on the it was Lizzie train. Yeah. Um, She was frustrated with where they lived. She wanted to be treated and live in a place where wealthy members of society were. She had anger over Abby and the belief that Abby only married Andrew for his money. And then Andrew gifts Abby and her family a bunch of properties, which decreases Lizzie's inheritance. And it was said Andrew was not exactly a likable man, so I'm sure he wasn't exactly the warmest parent in the world. And maybe he chastised his daughters for being unmarried. And then Lizzie starts taking care of those pigeons and her father brutally murders them for no reason. The point is, all I see at this point is motive. And how did she not murder them and not have any blood on her? Well, part of me wonders if the maid helped her and then helped her clean up. But since Bridget was ill, uh, maybe it's while she was lying down and she lied down longer than she realized. Or maybe she wasn't really sick and it was part of a ruse. Um, And to say everyone has a breaking point. Yeah. (laughs) 
And those deaths were beyond brutal. Doctors said that the first blow would have been enough to kill each of them, but they received more than 10 each after that first blow. So this just proves to me it is so rage-filled. And who was the angriest at the Bordens? And that would be Lizzie. And maybe Lizzie only meant to kill Abby, but realized she had to kill Andrew because he'd know it was her. And he covered for her about her stealing, but maybe he wouldn't cover for her for murder. And saying that the blood found on her was from her period at a point in time when no one would have pressed her further about it. I mean, the blood could have been tested now, but it wouldn't have been tested then. That was diabolical. Yeah. She nipped the conversation in the bud. Like, she was immediately like, oh, that? It's from Lady Times. And then the men were like, I can't, no, we can't hear about this. And this, to me, makes me feel like she really thought this out to the point where my last sentence, the execution, was methodical. So, yeah, I am, I am team whether she was part, yeah, whether she committed it physically herself or whether she was in on the whole conspiracy to have it done. She was definitely guilty and she just played up the... She's an innocent woman. She couldn't do something that brutal. Women don't do that. And then there's that mob boss, Cookies, that's like, you know what? Let them underestimate us. You know? <laughs> Which takes a turn that I don't want to kill anybody. But my of point course. is, it's like, sure, think we can't do things. But it's like... Well, it's interesting yeah. because... Let's say for a second that she did. She didn't, sure. as far as we know, she didn't go on to kill anybody else. Right? Sure. As far as we know. There was no unsolved murders that seemed to be tied to her. There was no murders that, that, got, that obviously she was charged with or convicted of or anything. So sure. if she did do it, it does feel like she was pushed to a breaking point for whatever reason. I am not condoning murder for no. a second, but it does feel interesting that it doesn't feel like she was someone who had bloodlust, that it was like, I have to kill, I want to kill, you know, that kind yeah. of typical serial killer personality. It's somebody who potentially, again, I'm speculating, but it's someone who potentially, if she did do it, it was because she was driven to a point based on whatever reason, and she did it, and then she moved on. I'm not saying that that's the right move ever, obviously, no. to be clear, but it does it, – it is interesting to me that it's it's not like this was, again, you know, someone who killed and then was like, okay, now I know what I want to do, and it's kill more. Um, it feels like potentially – if it was her, it was in her mind out of necessity in some way. And I'm not saying that it's a justifiable necessity. Right. But in her mind, whether it was about money or property or revenge for how her father had wronged her. Yeah. I mean, it is also like it's important to note that she was so close with her father and he would not wear a wedding ring with his second wife, but he would wear a ring that Lizzie gave him. 
correct? Yes. And then that man, that same man, killed all of her pigeons. That is some deep, twisted dysfunction and trauma. I'm not saying the answer to that is is to kill him, obviously. Right. But I am just saying that in terms of what kind of profile that could build, I could see that pushing potentially a human to go, I feel like this is my only answer. And then when that was out of the way, it was over. Right? Like, it, yeah. again, it wasn't like she, for, again, as far as we know, it it doesn't feel like she continued to kill. So it doesn't feel like this is just a random or rage-filled, instinctual serial killer. Again, if she did it, it feels like, for her, it felt like she had no other option, either short or long term, which is very interesting. And again, the fact that she that Abby was killed first and it had to go that way so that they would get the inheritance, essentially, it just feels yeah. like there's no motive for it to be a stranger. There's just no motive. And the fact that the doors nope. were locked in the way that they were, like, it's also kind of physically impossible. So there's no sign of a robbery. It also feels like the fact there was that, quote, robbery that happened beforehand and mm-hmm. that they kind of thought it was probably Lizzie. Um, was that potentially her trying to lay the groundwork, trying to make it look like a real robbery, so that then when this murder came, it was like, it may have been the intruders, it may have been the robbers, when in reality, Ooh. it was her. Interesting. Just oh, I do like that. Right? I mean, you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um... Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The idea that the idea that it was plotted out that far in advance. Oh, I feel or like it's, it's it's something she could have been plotting for some time, and oh, then she got yeah. the others on board one by one. Oh, that's so. She was the cookies. She was the cookies, and then she was like to her her confidants slash muscles was like this is what we have to do and all of them were like she's right because i'm also if they so if they get the inheritance because they are the the money goes to andrew's people so they get it it's more than possible they could have been like okay cool and here's some for uncle john yep or here's a property or here's Whatever, because I don't know what happened to John. Interesting. It just feels like, and I understand that you were saying that John was like Andrew's only real friend. But at the end of the day, especially given this period of time, 1800s, it feels like, again, I know that, who knows, we weren't there. But it feels like that's a period of time where... He is going to side with his blood relatives. The daughters of his deceased sister feel like they will hold a lot of weight in his mind in terms of justice, in terms of of honor, all of those kinds of things. It feels very odd to me that he would choose Andrew, 
her husband over her children. I don't believe that for a second. I think that that John would have an allegiance to Emma and Lizzie. That's my gut. Sure. It's more than possible. I mean, I also am convinced that it's something about the will. And it was, he was there to help him with the will because he wanted to make sure he was in it. Yeah. Or that he wanted to make sure that his nieces were in it. Is it possible that Emma or probably Lizzie called Uncle John, Uncle John, daddy's lost his mind. He's leaving everything to Abby, my stepmother and her sister, Sarah, and and we've been cut out of it. Us, his daughters, your nieces by blood. Don't you think that he would want to swoop in and be a hero? I hope more than anything that that exact conversation happened, like specifically the part of dragging out the, it's us, your nieces, by blood, like as though, <laughs> as though you're just like hammering the nail in a little more. Um, and I want to make it clear, I am not suggesting that I paint females in this light whatsoever. No. But we also know, given facts, that Lizzie was completely happy to paint that picture of herself in court. So I'm saying... Is it possible that she could have tried to get Uncle John on her side in this scenario? And I think, again, it's possible. I'm not saying it happened or it didn't. I'm saying it's possible. I mean, a wild ride Did was somehow the doctor involved. Thank you for saying that because that's the last thing I wanted to bring up that I forgot to. It feels odd that Dr. Bowen was so happy to defend Lizzie at every turn. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? There was a moment in my research. Thank you. Where I heard that there was some sort of event in town. I don't remember what it was. And... Being nice guy that he is, the doctor um, escorted Lizzie to the event. And it was like, the quote was like, and the town tongues were wagging. Like, everyone was like, oh, does that mean they're a thing? And it's like, oh, no, of course we're not a thing. He was just trying to be like a gentlemanly man to take her, you know, because the woman couldn't go alone. Um, and it just feels like, was there something else? Was she like, and then we can be together. And then it ends and she's like, I, I'm just not feeling your vibe. You know, like, was it? And that's it. Cause I don't know what happened with him after either. It's just, he was so quick to be like, oh yeah, if that's what she says it was, that's what it was. Which makes him feel like an ally, but then again, to your point, also makes him feel like a yes man. Yeah. So it could definitely be multiple people that are part of this. Now is But Lizzie is a hundred percent involved. Yeah, I agree. And that's bold to say a hundred percent, but No, yeah. I I think it's it would be there's not enough motive from anybody else. And she was there yeah. throughout. It feels exceptionally implausible, excuse (laughs) me, it feels exceptionally implausible that 
she would have been in the house the entire time and two murders would have happened with her there and she would not have known. That feels not likely. You mean to tell me that Abby was murdered and she just didn't happen to hear the screams, the struggles, the yells? Where was she? Oh, in the barn? You don't think that you could hear that? I don't care what the distance is from the house to the barn. I would go so far as to say as a a axe murdering. You're going to hear the shrill screams are probably going to travel. Now I know that again in the staircase episode of this show where I was like, they'd hear her. And they were like, they did a test. They didn't. Okay, it's possible. But it just feels, again, unlikely Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. of the people who were... Definitely on the property during that time, i.e. Yeah. her and Bridget. Yeah. She has a motive and Bridget doesn't. So Bridget it's may true. have a motive to back Lizzie up, but Lizzie is the only person who's on the scene, on the property, for both of those murders that has a vested interest in both of their deaths. It just feels like, again, I'm not saying she physically did it herself, but. I agree with you. I think she has to have been involved. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it couldn't, (laughs) other people could be involved, but there's no way that she wasn't. Yeah. There's no way. I mean, in the end, she got everything she wanted. Yep. She's, she immediately was living the life that she wanted to. And then she could just go off and do her own thing. And I just... I mean, the thing of it is, it's it's 129 years old, this case. So there's never going to be something that comes out that's like, oh, okay, now we've solved it. Like, this is just how it's going to be for the end of time, unfortunately. But we still think she did it. My question is this. You mentioned yeah. the B&B. You mentioned yeah. that it changed hands. Yeah. Does it still exist? I think so. You also mentioned that you wouldn't stay there. Oh, my God. I've already mentally put it on the list after we've hit the Cecil Hotel. Uh, Dear listeners, we'll see you season four (laughs) podcasting live from the Borden House B&B. Oh, I'm kidding. But not. Uh, Chrissy Oxborough, your research is always, uh, to to use your term, top notch, m'lady. Thank you, as always. I could not love more that uh, the further we get into this, a bit more posh we get with our terms. Mm. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yes. Um, no, I I think you really nailed it. I mean, I mean, again, this is a case that's over a hundred years old, and you brought intrigue. Yeah. You brought the facts. You again, I I was riveted as i'm sure all of the listeners were so thank you for that um thank you to all the listeners for listening to this episode of true crime and cocktails as we mentioned you can find us on facebook instagram and youtube at true crime and cocktails you can find us on twitter at not detectives you can find us on patreon patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails and you can find our beautiful merch store truecrewmerch.com the only place to get official true crime and cocktails merch so many fun things in there. Give it a look. Take a gander. You might find something you like. Um, it should also be noted that we have 
a big announcement, which is our next episode is episode 50. We've been around for 50 episodes. It hasn't even been a year, nay, even a year. But what a wonderful <laughs> accomplishment. And we, are, yeah. we could not have done it without you, our beautiful True Crew, listening. So we thank you so very much because without you, if nobody listened to the show, we wouldn't have a show to make. So we're very grateful to all of you for allowing these two chuckleheads to continue to uh, make this show that we love so much. Um, that means the world to us. Um, so, do, Christy, do you want to tell people about the next episode of the show? Oh, well, I just want to say that the next one happens to be our August patrons poll on the next True Crime and Cocktails, Kiera Coles. That's right, dear listeners. If you want to help vote on our patrons poll episodes, you can Become a patron, patreon.com slash cocktails to learn more about that. We're going to talk about Kiara Cools next week on the show. But until then, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. I think I'm just going to start asking if you want to say goodnight to Dave Grohl at the end of the episode. <laughs> I almost said goodnight to 7-Eleven because I wanted to get just one last, one last swing. And to that I say, goodnight, future tram traveling us. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.